Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, American Farron. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Not too much. Let's get to some headlines since there's a lot here. In your COVID headlines, life expectancy increased every year in the United States with very few exceptions until 2020 when it dropped. Now, 2021 is making it a trend. Latest figures released by the CDC show 2021 was the deadliest year in U.S. history with over 3.4 million deaths, about 80,000 more than 2020, which has been the deadliest year in U.S. history to date. In your national news, New York authorities have identified 62-year-old Frank James as a person of interest in the ongoing manhunt for the gunman who donned a reflective vest when he opened fire on the subway in Brooklyn Sunset Park neighborhood Tuesday morning, wounding at least 29 individuals who need further medical treatment. The South Dakota House of Representatives Tuesday impeached Attorney General Jason Ravensborg over a 2020 car crash in which he killed a pedestrian. Now, according to Ravensborg's initial claim, he said he might have struck a deer or another large animal, but it was later revealed he killed a person. Ravensborg, a Republican, is the first official to be impeached in South Dakota history. Speaking of impeached or indicted, New York uh, Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin resigned Tuesday just hours after being indicted on bribery and fraud charges tied to an illegal campaign finance scheme. The former state senator turned himself in Tuesday morning and was charged with five counts in connection with his failed bid for New York City comptroller last year. Now Benjamin is accused of working with real estate devel- a real estate developer in order to arrange for thousands of dollars in illegal campaign donations, where in exchange, Benjamin allegedly directed state funds to the investor. In your international news, U.S. President Joe Biden blasted Russian President Vladimir Putin In a statement on Tuesday, Biden accused Putin of committing a genocide in Ukraine amid claims of widespread war crimes. Quote, I called it genocide because it became clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of being able of being able to be in Ukraine. The evidence is mounting. It looks different than last week. He went on to say that more evidence is coming out literally of the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. But don't worry, the Ukraines, they've been perfect this entire time. German President Frank Walter Steinmeier was reportedly snubbed by his Ukrainian counterpart, Volodymyr Zelensky, after the former expressed interest in visiting Kiev to show solidarity with the Eastern European nation. The claim was first reported by the German newspaper Bild, which alleged that Steinheimer had planned to travel to Kiev with the presidents of Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland Wednesday. In your tech news, yikes. CNN Plus has gotten off on the wrong foot as it has struggled to gain viewers just two weeks after his after its launch. Citing people familiar with the matter, CNBC reported that CNN Plus is only raking in fewer than 10,000 viewers per day, a far cry 
from its 773,000 daily viewers on its cable channel. Coming up in my monologue at 8.15, we're going to go over the latest Nielsen ratings and the Comscore ratings. Having worked in television for so long, I can let you know that, yeah, mainstream media is dying. There's a reason I didn't go into it. In your Earth and Science news, NASA has determined the size of the largest comet seen with the Hubble Space Telescope estimating it to be some 80 miles across, which is bigger than the state of Rhode Island. According to the American Space Agency, the comet is shooting through the universe at a speed of 22,000 miles an hour, traveling right from the edge of the solar system and heading towards Earth. Perfect timing. Keep on coming. Keep on coming. In your business news, the Elon Musk Twitter saga continued Tuesday when a shareholder sued the billionaire over his delayed disclosure of his stake in the social media giant. According to the lawsuit, excuse me, filed Tuesday in the Southern District of New York, shareholder Mark Bain Rosella alleged that Musk made, quote, materially false and misleading statements and omissions by failing to disclose to investors his 9.2% ownership stake in a timely manner in violation of securities and exchange commission regulations. Rosala slammed the billionaire and claimed his delay caused him to lose money during the sale of the stock. Wow. Your crazy story of today, opponents of Brazil's right-wing president, Jair Jair Bolsonaro, I can speak, are demanding answers after it was revealed the country's armed forces had spent a large sum of money to buy tens of thousands of male enhancement pills. Brazilian lawmaker Elias Vaz called called on Bolsonaro to explain why his administration splashed a significant amount of money to buy a large quantity of Viagra pills. According to reports, Brazilian Navy and Air Force offered an explanation for the odd purchase, claiming that the drug was supposedly being used to treat pulmonary hypertension. Makes sense, but kind of weird. Your holidays today are International Creativity and Innovation Day, International Day of Pink. It's the second Wednesday in April. International Special Librarians Day, National Peach Cobbler Day, Plant Appreciation Day, Scrabble Day, and one that I'm sure is going to be quickly taken off the list, Thomas Jefferson Day. Because anybody that owned slaves back in the day has to be canceled 200 years later. Your historical dates. Hate that. Oh, yeah. Like those statues in Richmond where they were like, oh, we need to pull down the statues. No, those statues are living history. And if our perspective of that stuff changes as we get older as a civilization, so be it. Yeah. Remove it. We'll see. You're going to white out his signature on the Declaration of Independence, too? The whiteout's going to last a long time. Uh, Your historical dates today. In 1997, Tiger Woods became the youngest ever golfer to win the Masters tournament. But I think... Scotty, did Scotty just beat him for the Masters? No, he didn't? Okay. Uh, in 1970, an oxygen tank exploded on Apollo 13, leaving the spacecraft crippled. It took off, remember, two days ago on Monday? I think it was Monday. Yeah. So today's the day oxygen exploded. In 1960, oh, that's the infamous Houston, we have a problem. In 1960, the world's first satellite navigation system was launched. And in 1964, for his performance in Lilies of the Field, Sidney Poitier became the first African-American to win in the Academy Award for Best Actor. 
Those are your headlines for Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. Which I think goes um, to another quick uh, tribute that we have to do here. Um, Gilbert Gottfried, one of my favorite, um, just died yesterday. The comedian, Aladdin star, owner of the most recognizable voice in Hollywood. You remember? Good morning, everyone. Well, he has died after battling a long illness. His family announced Tuesday he was 67. His publicist told the Washington Post that he died of myotonic dystrophy type 2, which is a form of muscular dystrophy, which I did not know he had. Um, His family wrote on Twitter that we are heartbroken to announce the passing of our beloved Gilbert Gottfried after a long illness. In addition to being one of the most iconic voices in comedy, Gilbert was a wonderful husband, brother, friend, and father to his two young children. Although today is a sad day for all of us, please keep laughing as loud as possible in Gilbert's honor. For those, I could, I could never play it here, but one of my, my, my all-time favorite joke that he did that I heard as a young kid with my dad, and I remember just the two of us sitting there laughing his ass off, which just goes to show my dad didn't care how young we were when hearing jokes, was his jokes called The Aristocrats. I, can't, I remember that. I can't say it, but I don't oh think man, anybody can. The, you know, there's a there's a video of that, if I'm not mistaken, with all of the various comedians I doing say, that joke. It's a common known thing that every one yeah. of them in a comedy club and they would go up and try to gross each other out yes. even more. And yeah. that and yeah. all of them said, like, I believe it was Jeff Ross who was the one that explained this, that yeah, every comedy or every comedian would do this, especially at the comedy store. For those who didn't know, I'm a big stand-up fan, if you couldn't tell. And um, even did some stuff at Second City, too, in Chicago when I was thinking of being the weekend update anchor at SNL. And then I realized that TV kind of pays a little bit more. And it's hard to get into. Um, but that, yeah, every one of them, they would do this aristocrats, aristocrats joke. And that after all of them did it, we're talking Jeff Ross, Kevin Nealon, um, Joe Rogan. I, God, there's so many of other ones. Um, Ari Fleischer. I'm trying to think of the other ones. But either way, Gilbert Gottfried won hands down every single time. So, all right. Rest in power, Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah, that's, mm, I feel bad for him. Or the family anyway. Wow. And he's, how old was he, by the way? 67. So he wasn't ancient. No. Any stretch of the imagination. He was actually pretty young. My grandma, when she died, she was 65. And we considered that young. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I feel bad for him on that one. Or the very least of the family. And like you said, nobody knew. Nobody knew. It seems like he or the family was keeping that kind of close. To well, there was chest. even a tweet last night um, where it showed Bob's. It was it was all of them sitting at a. Oh, that was the other one that used to do it. Bob Saget. And they always thought that That's Bob him. Saget would win it. But Gilbert Gottfried always beat him. Um, but they were all sitting at a little corner booth. And it was Bob Saget, Norm MacDonald, Gilbert Gottfried, and then Jeff Ross. For those that don't know, Jeff Ross is like considered the roast master in comedy. Wow. Mm. But yeah, three out of the four in that picture gone too soon. Really? So there's one more left or just one left? Mm-hmm. Wow. There's one more story I want to get to because I think this story is, it's good because it's coming from the West. And it seems that the British media is trying to get his people into a mindset that, all right, this isn't going well. And it seems that they are on the brink of collapsing meaning Maripol. The last Ukrainian soldiers defending Maripol said they were running out of ammunition on Monday and expected to be killed or taken prisoner very soon by the Russian forces surrounding the city. We've been telling you here that the city was falling for a while, and they're now acknowledging it. The 36th Brigade said its 47-day defense of Maripol was coming to a tragic conclusion. Quote, we are bombed from airplanes and shot by artillery and tanks. We have been doing everything possible. 
and impossible, but any resources has the potential to run out, it says. Um, and this is basically the people who are on the ground there who are basically saying they felt abandoned. Um, here. In their messages, the Marines and Maripal said they feel written off by their commanders in chief. They said they repeated, oh, they said repeated promises to relieve the crushing Russian blockade of the city or evacuate some of the wounded by helicopter came to nothing. Quote, there were chances due to silliness. They were not implemented, unquote, the brigade wrote. Now, keep in mind, they tried to send multiple helicopters to get these guys out. They tried to send some kind of boat thing that, again, was captured. And so it wasn't for lack of trying, um, but for all intents and purposes, they just weren't able to do it. And one last interesting point. I've made the point on more than one occasion that Russia wasn't trying to siege Kiev, that the goal was to basically encircle or to create a faint maneuver to keep those troops there. Well, they're basically repeating the same thing. They've made the point that it is too early to call Kiev a win because there are Russian troops out there that at any particular moment can basically go back if they leave Kiev undefended. And so they're in a situation where the military seems to be stretched. They seem to be running out of supplies in mass. They themselves at this point are owning up to the fact that they are basically on the brink of collapse. And of course, if Maripol collapses, those troops are probably going to find themselves going to the Donbass region that much more so for the final major conflict. So this is no longer just quote unquote Russian propaganda in the way they would say it. This is The Guardian, unless The Guardian has at some point overnight become Russian propaganda. All right, let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Brian Zach, back in a moment. Still back segment. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. You're listening to Fault Lines. I'm Farron Franzek, joined by my co-host, Jamarl Thomas. It is that time for that soapbox segment. Uh, Jamarl, what is your fault? So I guess there's one fault, but an update on one story. Let's start there. New York, Frank, uh, New York police named Frank James, a person of interest in a Brooklyn subway shooting. Authorities say they do not know if James was the gunman, but at the very least, they're trying to get their way closer and closer to who was responsible. Um, so that's kind of, I guess, the headline news that's coming up. Yeah, um, we also headlines. Oh, it just came out. It's like literally just came out, um, like a few minutes ago. Yeah. Oh, maybe yeah. I'm wrong. No, 9:02 p.m. Okay, fair enough. That wasn't headlines. My bad. My bad. Frank um, James, I was paying attention. Was paying attention. All right. So one of the stories I want to get into has to do with a conversation that is taking place right now on how do we protect? Meaning, talking about from the Democratic perspective, how do we protect Congress? Now, all of us here have made the point that we believe it is going to be a red winner, meaning that the Republicans are going to take it. It is hard to figure out at this point what is Biden going to use for his rationale and reasoning for people to vote for him, and which is kind of the point, right? How, after an administration over the course of, let's say, one year, and you are the president of the United States, the focal point, the leader of a particular party, how do you get the public to go and vote for your particular party when the public is looking at you and is not liking you all that much? Not to mention giving you some of the lowest ratings that any other president has had up to this point, with the exception of, let's say, maybe Donald Trump. What do you do? What is your plan? How on earth are you going to win? And so MSNBC, John Heilerman, one of their contributors, has, is having a conversation. And I want you to hear what he tells them. And he tells you, he's very clear, I don't back this. I don't even think or know if this would do the trick that they're trying to do. However, the Democrats have a problem. Biden has a problem. The people who are basically running in the Democratic Party coming up in the midterms will have a problem. How do you solve it? 
Let's play the clip. And is there a way to maybe save the house? Most people don't think there is. But the strategy that people are kind of thinking about now, and it's, it's driven not just by the left, but by anybody who's in danger, is we're going to have these 1-6 committee hearings. Donald Trump's going to be in the spotlight. He was the reason. He wasn't on the ballot in 2018 when we had massive turnout that helped Democrats, that blue wave. It was because we nationalized the elections and made it about fear of Trump. Let's take Donald Trump Take that 1-6 committee, the threat he poses to democracy, make him still the face of the Republican Party. I'm not endorsing the strategy. I'm saying this is what a lot of people are talking about doing. Make him the face of the Republican Party. Talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthorn. Say this party is crazy town. It's Trumpist. Trump is a threat to our democracy. Make try to make Democratic base voters scared again. It's the it's they, they they can't motivate them on the basis of hope or their pocketbooks or any of these accomplishments. They have to scare the crap out of them and get them to come out. And then maybe and I this is a, d- a dark thought. The other thing that people look at as a as a variable is the possible repeal of Roe v. Wade and that being a motivating factor for a lot of Democratic voters. And if you that those things are on the horizon and a lot of Democrats are thinking about. What kind of strategy could incorporate those events in a way that would maybe at least point towards a path to limit losses, if not, if not hold on to the House, at least make it closer? A weaponization of Roe v. Wade. Now, I love that because that was, again, one of the things that I kind of made the point earlier, I think like months ago when all of this kind of came to a head, that Roe v. Wade, that Democrats on some level are going to be begging for them to get rid of Roe v. Wade, looking for, let's say, a wild card, looking for an anomaly and the election that could maybe draw support and get those people who basically aren't necessarily jazzed up by the party and the lack of accomplishments within the context of that party, that maybe you can get this kind of existential risk stuff going on in people's head, in which case it drives them to the polls in lieu of the party doing anything for it. Um, We'll see about that and whether that works per se. But the idea that these guys are praying for that on some level in the back end as their hopeful chance of retaining the House of Representatives kind of gets across their problem. I mean, Roe v. Wade is somewhat sacrosanct in the context of the Democratic Party, and here they are willing to jettison that, or at the very least hoping Republicans would overplay their hand on that, that would maybe give them some potential. Now, you have this other issue with them losing or hemorrhaging votes from the standpoint of African Americans, which is, again, why I strongly believe that they came out with, we're going to pick a black woman for this role, knowing you're not going to get anything else, so we're going to at the very least give you the symbolic gesture with the hopes that you care about the symbolic gesture so much that you would, again, give us some level of support. And again, I am highly doubtful that that is going to have the bang for the buck. For the longest time, we had the wag the dog, where Joe Biden wanted to seem presidential by standing in front of the world. And if he, standing in front of the world, can stand down and push down Vladimir Putin, then Joe Biden will get the accolades and all of this additional attention. Again, that doesn't seem to be taking place. I mean, his approval rating has just gone down further. Biden's approval rating is low across the board, including among Democratic groups that generally support Democratic Democrats, including racial minorities and young people. People under 30 gave Biden resounding thumbs down with 57% saying they disapprove and 43% saying they approve of the president's performance. A 54% majority of Hispanics and 33% of African-Americans say they disapprove of Biden. 22% of people who voted for Biden in 2020 also disapprove. If you don't believe that that is going to have adverse effects in the midterms, you're not paying attention. So what are they going to do about it? There's been reports talking about getting the youth vote and trying to figure out what they want um, in order to get them elected. But again, this is a youth vote. And if you want to remember, this is something that Sanders had a plan of. Sanders was able to get more of a youth vote than Trump 
and the Democrats combined. And even that wasn't enough. That vote was still too flaky um, in order to kind of make that work. And that's with Sanders. And so the youth vote, who's basically being asked by the pollster, what do you want? How on earth will we be able to get your vote and get you to come out in order to put us in office? Their response, basically very clear. We need you to do things. It can't just be optics. It can't just be rhetoric. It can't just be symbolism. We need you to do real things. And those real things should have an effect in our wallets. It should have an effect in regards to our ability to kind of orient ourselves into the future with housing costs or with um, issues associated with tax, like gas and all of these other things that they have to pay for, not to mention college costs. All of these things weigh on the various communities, especially that particular community, the youth community. So what are you going to do to get those votes? And the honest reality is what Hyman basically made the point about. Yeah, Heilerman made the point. January 6th, we need to orient the country once again around this idea that Trump is a threat. Trump is a menace. Trump is going to end the world. He's out there kicking puppies and eating babies. That is what Donald Trump is doing. And we need all of you to remember that. And in trying to get all of the people to remember that, come out for this national campaign, as he said, in order to try to save the House of Representatives. Notice nothing about the Senate on that. Save the House of Representatives. We will see if Heilerman has a point. We will see if they're able to pull this off. I got to be honest, I am extremely, extremely skeptical that the public is going to be okay with this, especially considering the increase in inflation, the increase in gas taxes, what potentially is looking like a recession that's on the horizon. I mean, look at the financial reportings uh, or the stuff that's coming out of financial news. They are expecting something major to take place with this kind of looming and darkening economic picture over the United States and over the world. But specifically to the United States, what is the public going to do when they realize that their money costs or is worth less? What are they going to do when they go to the supermarket and all of the things that they need to buy that they would typically buy all of a sudden just cost more? What do they do when they go to the gas station and they're paying twice as much for gas? What do they do? More importantly, who do they blame? And are they going to look at the party that's in power as responsible? Even if they can't connect the dots, even if they're not looking at this as a geopolitical thing, even if they blame Putin on some level about it, even if they blame COVID on some level about it, are they going to look at the administration and the team that is in power and say, okay, we accept that some of these things are acts of gods, but by the same token, you guys are in power. You were the leaders. This is on you. And being on you, exact a certain amount of righteous justice in putting these guys out of office. Here's the key point, though. If you are a Democrat and you're asking yourself, or I've seen this kind of conversation being batted about, that's why I'm going this route with it. If you really want to know why the other public is not voting for your person, I get you think it's existential. I get you think the Supreme Court matters more than anything else in this very specific case. I get you look at the world this way. Many people in the country that are not necessarily doing all that well, that are going through somewhat bad ends, that had all of these expectations of Biden coming in office and doing what he said he was going to do. $15 hour minimum wage. These people are heroes. And the fact that they're heroes needs to be honored. We must ensure that there are no such things as a starvation wage. That didn't happen. Legalization of marijuana, something he could do with a flick of a pen. That didn't happen. The Build Back Better didn't happen. Public option. Didn't happen. You can keep going down the list for the stuff. And the stuff that he is doing, like the immigration and getting rid of Title 42, is going to expand and explode immigration into the country again. When you're looking at this, 
and you are a Democrat and you are shocked and perturbed as to why people aren't backing your party and it's not accepting all of your, you know, hey, hey, you got to vote Democrat because we need the Supreme Court, et cetera, et cetera. Look around. Is it possible that your president and the party members lied to you? And if they did lie to you to such grand voluminous degrees, because after all, if Biden is going to make those promises, did he know a pathway to get those promises done? Or was he just promising whatever he needed to promise in order to get elected? Which one was it? And if it indeed was lying, why on earth should people turn around and support the guy that basically lied and told people anything that he needed to tell them to get elected? And this was even during COVID. And more importantly, he was willing to do it once. Would he be willing to do it again? And the party members that weren't able to basically get their agenda accomplished, what have they done to justify being reelected? And therein lies the rub. And because I don't think they can answer that question adequately, I don't think that question will be answered in their favor. Fern, what are your thoughts? What's the, do you think Holloman has a point that these guys, that this is going to work on some level, whether January 6th can be used to try to drag Trump into the conversation and discussion in a way that kind of gets people to forget about how much they dislike Biden, how much they've disliked Democrats, and how much they've basically not done any of those things that they said they were basically coming in office to do. Is he right? Is Trump enough? No, I don't think so. I, don't think I, I think I think this January 6th stuff is just completely a a stupid thing to make themselves feel like they're doing something. I mean, even I mean, even I'll even go as far as saying when they when they confirmed Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, you know, they all got up there and they're like, yay. And they're all, you know, acting like they did this historical thing. And it's like, OK, so you you nominated the first black woman. OK, great. But to act like you guys have just defeated you know, all racism in one nominee or acting like that this is you guys now being able to get your stuff done. Like, give me a break. You have the House, you have the Senate, you have the executive branch. I don't know what else you need more. Now, now you need, now it's that, you you know, and that's the one thing that Republicans, and I used to know it as a, as a kid growing up in a very red county as a rush baby. You know, all you heard was, oh, we just need the House and then the Senate and then we just need all three. And you saw when you had all three, they did nothing. They did absolutely nothing. But all they do is, and I talked about this yesterday, is that, you know, when you have these problems, they shift to social issues, like what your kids are learning in school. You know, I'm sorry, like this whole idea of, oh, no, no, now they've just started teaching critical race theory. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. I mean, maybe, maybe some schools few and far between, but I mean, I have nieces and nephews. They're not teaching this crap. No, they're not. I mean, even in Virginia, where it became a campaign issue, you know, wasn't even on the ballot. I mean, I'll understand some of the stuff as far as, you know, they're, they're, they're grooming or whatever, but it's like, you know, adapt to change, folks. Times are changing. Transgenders are happening. Gay people, straight people, what have you. Crap's changing. Adapt. And that's the problem is you have a party that likes to tout that they're all about change, yet they change nothing. And then you do have Republicans where they don't like change and they will resist change at every single opportunity. Um, and the point being is, is that, you know, we're a country where for the past 30 years, stuff hasn't really worked that well, has it? They, they'll, they'll change when it comes to big companies and corporations. Oh, they'll like they'll kick people off of welfare and they'll they'll uh, expand NAFTA and all this other stuff to watch American jobs leave so that corporations can pay workers less and get all these immigrants to come in and pay them nothing. Oh, they'll change for that when when that's when the people who are lining their pocketbooks ask for it. 
But when it's the American people, they can't change anything. So no, January 6th is literally just something to make themselves feel like they're actually doing their job when they're doing none of the sort. Agreed. Thousand percent agree. Um, and look, we'll see. I, I could totally be wrong. We could totally be wrong on that. Um, and and this whole idea, too, that they're going to change Roe v. Wade. It's in the freaking Constitution. They're not going to change it. It's in the Constitution? Roe v. Wade? I mean, I'm sorry. It's, 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 uh, it's already a law. Sorry. It's, it's not. They're not going to change it. Well, it's case law, as I understand it. Right. They're not going to be able to go back and change this. Oh, this I has been around for 30 years. And I've heard this argument for the past 20 years that, oh, look, they're going to they're going to pack the court and go back and change Roe v. Wade. They asked Kavanaugh about it. They asked Katanji Brown about it. They asked AOR, um, Amy Coney Barrett about it. And they said the way the law is, is the way that the law is. I thought she was fuzzier on that. No, she said, I don't she said, I don't I don't feel going back and changing things. Mm. OK, well, we'll see. I mean, and, and that was the other thing is, is depending upon who you watched, they, they acted like she was all fuzzy about it for yeah. ratings. I mean, I, I know her just in the, fa- in the facet of my brother was a student under her at Notre Dame. And one of the funny things was, is he said not once did she ever talk about abortion or changing Roe v. Wade or anything of the sort. She actually focused more in, in, in corporate law yeah. and international law. Nothing of, of this. And that's the other thing is, is that, you know, then they're, they're going to act like Katanji Brown Jackson was all about pedophiles and, and, you know, letting off pedophiles. When, mind you, she was working pro bono to help Guantanamo Bay prisoners who Senator Tom Cotton linked as to her defending the Nazis. Okay. This whole Nazi thing, like we really got to get over this crap. Do you know how many people we've compared to Hitler? In the past, like, 60 years, at this point, I could be Hitler. The only person who's Hitler is Hitler. And everything exactly. else is just kind of our way of trying to make it seem, this is the worst thing that we can think of in the moment. I'm sorry. Most things aren't Hitler. Yeah. But, I mean, it's just a lot of these, a lot of these media outlets, they, 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 they push out what you want to hear. They, they put out a narrative of people's lives, you know, like the whole Kavanaugh thing, the whole Amy Coney Barrett. And, again, like, I, I knew two of those people just because, again, my, my own brother was students, even under Kavanaugh. He was a professor at Notre Dame, too. And like my brother was like, he was more one of the left leaning teachers that I saw versus like the law than I than Amy Coney Barrett. And here they're, you know, it's just they always have to find something. And it's just none of them like change. They don't like change and they like to sit there and keep lining their pockets. And like I always say, when nothing changes, people keep making money. There you go. Listen to this. Let's take a break. We have the one and only Ted Rawl. He's going to get into the items that are taking place in New York. And there's a stunning amount of news coming out of New York. New York Lieutenant Governor resigns after bribery. We have the gunman, of course, that basically took place. We have Greg. Um, uh, what is his name? What is his name? Mayor Adams. And what he's basically Eric doing. Adams. Mm-hmm. Eric Adams, right. Well, yeah, Mayor Adams and what he's doing for crimes. But you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Bronzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Fern Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can reach us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video, or for that matter, a rumble. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with at, by phone at 
521-1320. Your engagement helps makes this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And yeah, I'll just read the headline again. The headline does it, um, does it no, it's straightforward. New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin resigned on Tuesday, just hours after being indicted on bribery and fraud charges tied to an illegal campaign finance scheme. The former state senator turned himself in on Tuesday morning and was charged with five counts in connection with a failed bid for New York City Comptroller last year. Benjamin is accused of working with a real estate developer in order to arrange thousands of dollars of illegal campaign donations, where, in exchange, Benjamin allegedly directed state funds to the investor. To have a conversation with us and other stories that are basically coming out of New York, we're joined with our one and only one of my favorite guests, Ted Rawl. He's an American columnist, syndicated editorial columnist, and author. Ted, how are you doing this morning? You doing all right? I'm doing better than the former lieutenant governor. Who are you telling? Now, most people are doing better than the former lieutenant governor. What is going on with that? And how is New York dealing with that? I mean, I was reading through the story last night, and I was even reading through some of this stuff this morning. I mean, Hoshul, I mean, this is after Cuomo. Like, you, you guys have had a bit of political intrigue there. What is going on with the story? Explain the story to us. Well, first of all, uh, this story, in terms of the reaction of New Yorkers, is being completely washed away by the events at the, in the subway yesterday morning. Uh, that's what New Yorkers are absolutely focused on. Uh, but this, and then people are sort of saying, oh, and by the way, did you hear about this crazy? And, and which, by the way, can we, can we hit that subway story for a second? How is it that the city that never sleeps, the city in, in a country where we have all this money, we're called a police state, none of these security cameras were working, they say? Like, how, how is that even possible? Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, I've been to that station. That is a major transfer hub in, in Brooklyn. It's not just a subway station. Three uh, lines stop there. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with New York, it's kind of the uh, mid-Brooklyn uh, sort of equivalent of the, uh, of Atlantic, of the uh, Atlantic uh, Avenue station in downtown Brooklyn. So a lot of trains there. It's a big station. I would think that you would need at least 20 or 30 cameras to cover it. It's got multiple entrances. It's got a mezzanine. Um, so, you know, it's not, and also, it's not just that station that apparently had no working cameras. Um, you know, this guy didn't get on. The, he, this happened on a train that arrived at the 36th Street station. So that means he got on somewhere else, right? You know, where, so there apparently weren't working cameras at whatever station it was that he got on. So this is probably, you know, I, I guess that, you know, we have Potemkin cameras throughout the MTA system. Uh, you know, they, we're, they're meant to make New Yorkers feel safe, I guess, like the ones outside uh, Jeffrey Epstein's. Prison. I was thinking the exact same thing. But they, but they don't work. Uh, I mean, I guess, you know, the, if you, you know, the cynic in me is like, well, maybe we don't have to really worry that much about the surveillance state because maybe they're not really surveilling us that much, as much as we thought. But the one place you would really think that you would have, have working security cameras would be in the New York subway. And this story really uh, sort of completely goes like a, a you know, like a laser, hones in like a laser into the fears of New Yorkers right now. I mean, New York is not, you know, it, is, it has been asleep, half asleep uh, for two years of pandemic. Uh, a lot of New Yorkers haven't come back. Office buildings are still um, largely empty and probably will remain that way. And, the, you know, the subways are literally the worst part of it all. I mean, 
storefronts might be closed out on the street, but the subways are a disaster. Uh, every single subway car has a homeless person or two. Uh, the twenty four seven. The trains are perpetually delayed. Things feel dangerous and sketchy. New Yorkers. Uh, just are afraid to stand near the edge of the platform for fear of being pushed in in front of a train. There's just so mentally ill people roaming around in the system that, um, you know, this is this is totally like, oh, my God, this is like the er example of, you know, why we're afraid. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people will be Ubering and, and taking yellow cabs uh, for the foreseeable future just out of paranoia after, after what happened yesterday. This is a big big thing for New Yorkers. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's outrageous that there were that there were no working cameras in that station. It's also outrageous that there's no transit police department uh, as we used to have, uh, you know, a special police uh, department completely dedicated to the problems of the subway that were eliminated. It was eliminated under Giuliani. It didn't really matter because the economy was doing so well that uh, crime was relatively low, but it matters now. We need that back. Well, and the other part that's interesting, too, is this guy, Frank James, 62 years old, has a YouTube channel. There's YouTube videos of him saying that, we, you know, we need a clean house. And, you know, he's, he's got all these YouTube videos out there. In the age of cell phones and technology, it's like you would think that you'd be able to somewhat find this guy pretty quick. And, you know, you have Eric Adams. And, and, and here's here's my thing. And I don't want to get conspiratorial here, but how much, like, how, how, how perfect does this all line up? You have this attack that happens in a subway. None of the cameras work, but they immediately know who the guy is, despite not having any cameras. And then Eric Adams suddenly gets COVID, so he can't even come out and talk about it. He's in his, you know, mansion, you know, behind a camera talking to everybody where he says he's, he doesn't even have any symptoms. Let's call COVID for what it is. It's the freaking flu at this point. I mean, how, how, I mean, it's just like, again, not to get conspiratorial, but how do all these events add up like too perfectly for me? And I mean, that's, that's just what I keep saying. Uh, I don't think that, yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a conspiracy. What I think is there's a perfect storm of stupidity. That's that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like all of, all of this. Yeah. Storm of. Yeah, storm. Yeah, I like that storm of stupidity. I'm going to use that. I love that statement, Ted. Perfect storm of stupidity. Mm -hmm. That is great because that was the Epstein thing too, right? It's like you have all of these cameras, and it makes people conspiratorial on some level because right. they think to themselves, "How can they be that stupid? How can you be that inept? How can you not just have the basic capabilities of state or or industry?" Correct me on something though. I thought that I was reading reports that Eric Adams had reinstated transit cops in the subways in order to reinforce or to enforce. Toes or people with toe jumpers. Tell me if I'm wrong on that. Well, you're not wrong that he said it. Uh, you're, you'd be wrong if you think that it happened. Ah, <laughs> there it is. He's only been mayor for what, like a couple months? Yeah, that he uh, he took office at the first of the year, and um, he he be he said that this was going to happen. I guess in between all the nightclubbing, uh, he he said that he was going to do that. It didn't happen uh, in my local station in Manhattan. Uh, a couple about. Two and a half weeks ago, for the first time in literally decades, I saw two police officers from the Transit Bureau. Uh, there. And New Yorkers, we were all like walked right up to them as though, you know, like, like, like an exotic animal had presented itself, like a peacock had, had arrived. On our, on, and we were all like, wait, what? And then literally, we, so we were talking to the officers and they were like, yeah, 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 we're, we're only assigned to be down here for, for the next two hours. Uh, we, we know we're not coming back. 
<laughs> they literally told us that. And we never saw them again. Um, they were they were fine looking gentlemen. I miss them. I wish they would come back if they can hear me. We miss you. Come back. Um, they it is no. It's it's completely it's a joke. I mean, there's something called the Transit Bureau, which was supposed to replace the Transit Police. Um, it's Transit Bureau is part of the NYPD. Um, but the truth is, it's just not the same thing. I mean, it's one of the things about the transit police was they had separate uniforms, separate separate command and control structure, and they were literally there was one or two transit cops on every subway system running through the system at any time. That was there are no cops, uh, perhaps undercover cops, but there are no uniformed officers in the system. At all now. I mean, you know, I mean, I was when I was looking at the footage of what happened at the station in Brooklyn in Sunset Park. And, you know, I was like, oh, my God, look at all these uniforms. Where are they when we actually need them? Uh, You know, I don't know where these guys are most of the time on their cell phones somewhere, but they're not in the subways. I'm curious. Like you said, Eric Adams is basically just taking a job. How's the public taking this before moving on from the story? How's the public? Um. Accepting this, and how are they looking at Eric Adams in the face of this? Are they looking? Are they rallying around him? Are they considering him on some level culpable? In the sense that you know, it's like, dude, you were the top cop, you were brought in on some level because you were the top cop, and now we're seeing spikes in violence, and now we've just had all of these people die. How is the public in New York dealing with the story in relation to Eric Adams? Well, New Yorkers are very wait and see people. So when he took office, people were like, didn't know much about him. Uh, you know, he was he'd been Brooklyn Borough President, but. Citywide, uh, you know, we, he had a bit of a, of a reputation, uh, you know, when and a good reputation as a former cop, but that just sort of didn't. We were kind of like, well, we'll see how he is as mayor. Now it's been it's been four months, uh, and you know, the already I think the verdict is in among especially uh, you know people who are informed, educated, uh, well-read people, who, and they they're just looking at him and they're saying this is a clown. Um, he's not, you know, he's not on the job. He's, uh, he's, all he's doing is, is going out partying. Um, he's not a serious man. And that's the thing that, you know, there's a lack of seriousness here and it's ridiculous. This guy ran on this exact issue. Um, you know, this should be his wheelhouse and he's messing up big time. I would say if there was an election tomorrow, he'd lose. I I guess that makes the point, right? Um, I want to move to Lieutenant Governor for a moment while we're talking about political intrigue and the things that are taking place. What is going on with the story? I mean, and how is this going to affect um, Hocho going forward? And Hocho being the governor, the, the one that basically replaced Cuomo. So the Lieutenant Governor, explain the story to us. I guess let's start at the beginning. What went on with this kind of bribery scheme where he was, I guess, shuffling money back to another organization that basically gave money to him um, to get elected? What, what's, explain the story to us. Ed. My favorite part of the story is the fact that he, was, he had a failed run for comptroller. In other words, he was running for the guy who runs the city's money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's my favorite part about the story. Um, it's for those who are old enough to remember, this is highly analogous to uh, the scandal that brought down Vice President Spiro Agnew in the early 70s, where, in other words, it was nothing that he had done as vice president. Um, he had accepted bribes as governor of Maryland from the milk lobby. $10,000 uh, brought him down, and, uh, but it took years for it to percolate. This didn't take as long, um, this was, but uh, basically this was sort of two things. He was uh, assuming that he, of course, obviously he's innocent until proven guilty, so we'll assume that, but he, he allegedly um, 
basically tried to circumvent campaign finance limitations uh, by sort of doing what a lot of politicians do legally, which is to set up shell state, shell companies uh, for one donor. They something called bundling. They try to get the donations to come in under separate names. That's what this guy did, although he did it sloppily. Uh, may not have paid for the right accountant or the right campaign consultant to arrange it for him. And then he was trying, and then if there was a, uh, basically it was a bribery scandal in that it was influence peddling. He was trying to, <clears throat> he uh, took money from uh, a donor that he then directed, he intended to direct uh, campaign, uh, direct city business back to. Again, <clears throat> the sort of thing that is, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, is part and parcel of American politics, unfortunately, all the time. Uh, again, he just sort of did it stupidly, and that's why he got caught. I guess that's the theme of this morning's show, <laughs> but is the stupidity is, is at the center of this story. Well, then the other thing is, is you also have another senator, uh, a senator of stupidity. You have Prime Minister jo- Boris Johnson says he's not going to resign after being fined for breaking his own government's pandemic lockdown rules, saying instead he's going to redouble efforts to strengthen the economy and combat Russian aggression in Ukraine. <laughs> now, right for those that don't remember, um, in London police, they find Johnson and others for attending a birthday party thrown for the prime minister at his Downing Street offices in June 2020, the height of COVID. You also had, you know, people like Nancy Pelosi. You had Adam Shifty Shift, as they call him. Um, AOC going down to Miami with no mask on. Um, you had all these other people who were very much do as I say, not as I do. The part that's kind of interesting to me, though, is um, these people are starting to get fined now, you know, especially in Boris Johnson. You know, this penalty makes Johnson the first British prime minister ever found to have broken the law while in office and to get fined. I mean, could we be seeing a change in, you know, that 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 Sam Cooke change is going to come where some of these people are going to be held responsible? I don't think so. (laughs) Damn it, Ted. This is a, uh, let's just say this is an outlier, a quantum singularity. Um, you know, it's, it's funny and amusing. I mean, I, you know, there was, um, uh, there was some accountability, as I recall, for, uh, oh, my God, former uh, French president, um, whose name? Oh, I know you talked about the one that got locked up, Sarkozy. He actually, he actually, yeah, he actually went to the clink for, what, a year? Um, so I think that's probably the most uh, accountability uh, you know, legitimate accountability. I don't mean like the kind of thing that happened in Brazil a few years ago. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I think the Boris Johnson thing is is amusing and interesting, but it's it does not presage any kind of era of accountability, unfortunately. But you know, at, at a certain point, I keep you know we keep waiting. You know, people will rise up. I know that. You know, I just don't know when it's going to happen, but I do know it will happen. We say that people will rise up. I mean, that kind of goes to the monologue this morning, dealing with this notion of Democrats' plan to kind of maintain the House of Representatives. Guys, can you cue that video up for me? We'll just play a part of it. But basically, this kind of idea that January 6th is going to be used as a political weapon. And the problem with this is the issue of legitimacy, right? I mean, the January 6th thing, in order to have any legitimacy at all, has to be on some level nonpartisan. Otherwise, people are just going to look at it for what it is. They're using this as a way to hit their political opponents. Well, on MSNBC, they said the quiet part out loud, basically. And the quiet part out loud was, look, we're trying to use January 6th as a way to drag Trump back into the election because we believe this is our only chance of protecting the House of Representatives. That's the first point. 
And two, we don't want this to happen, wink, wink. But if they get overly aggressive and go after Roe v. Wade, then that will give a wild card, this kind of um, unknown factor in the race that may also create an existential crisis in the heads of various people who are Democrats to run out and vote for various Democrats. And is there a way to maybe save the House? Most people don't think there is. But the strategy that people are kind of thinking about now, and it's, it's driven not just by the left, but by anybody who's in danger, is we're going to have these 1-6 committee hearings. Donald Trump's going to be in the spotlight. He was the reason. He wasn't on the ballot in 2018 when we had massive turnout that helped Democrats, that blue wave. It was because we nationalized the elections and made it about fear of Trump. Let's take Donald Trump Take that 1-6 committee, the threat he poses to democracy, make him still the face of the Republican Party. I'm not endorsing the strategy. I'm saying this is what a lot of people are talking about doing. Make him the face of the Republican Party. Talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Madison Cawthorn. Say this party is crazy town. It's Trumpist. Trump is a threat to our democracy. Make try to make Democratic base voters scared again. It's the it's they, they they can't motivate them on the basis of hope or their pocketbooks or any of these accomplishments. They have to scare the crap out of them and get them to come out. And then maybe and I this is a, a dark thought. The other thing that people look at as a as a variable is the possible repeal of Roe v. Wade and that being a motivating factor for a lot of Democratic voters. And if you that those things are on the horizon. Let's stop there. Ted. That is basically the same Democratic plan for the last 30 years, at the very least in my existence. Um, scare the devil out of people with tales of how demonic the Republican Party is. I mean, in their very specific case, they just have Trump being, you know, the avatar of everything that they basically are terrified of. And his response is basically, look, this, their job, their goal, their objective will be to make Trump as this looming threat that regardless of who you're putting into office from the standpoint of the midterms, that those people are going to be part of this kind of Trumpian dilemma that the country is basically facing. I don't know how this is any different than this notion of scaring African-Americans into voting Democrat or scaring Hispanics in voting a Democrat. It just seems that fear is the main driver in this as opposed to these kind of aspirational hopes. What did you think about this? Is it, do you think this is going to work? Neither Furin or I, um, she can entirely speak for herself, believe this is going to work. What are your thoughts? I, I don't think it's going to work. <clears throat> Historically, it's only really worked once that I can think of in recent history, and that's why Democrats are uh, besotted by it. Uh, it happened to elect Joe Biden. It, it, so they're looking at that and they're saying, oh, wow, look, that worked for Biden. I'd like to point out that, first of all, it barely worked for Biden. He barely won. Uh, and, it, it, and, you know, this was a and, and really what defeated Donald Trump was his handling of covid, uh, his strange and odd and erratic behavior online and so on. Uh, you know, Trump, Donald Trump defeated himself in the same way that Hillary Clinton defeated herself. Uh, but that just doesn't happen that often. Uh, in these midterms, I mean, look, you've got, Democrats are not running on anything positive. And, you know, in that clip that you played, the guy says, well, you know, we can't run on pocket. We can't get motivate people from their pocketbook issues. I'm like, well, you sure haven't really tried. Have um, and, you know, you haven't really gone to the mat over Build Back Better or anything else, any other attempt to put money into people's pockets. You don't seem to have a credible plan to fight inflation. And you don't even need, seem to know how to take credit for the fact that the job market is excellent from the standpoint of the unemployed at this point. You know, there's never been a better time to look for work or to ask your boss for a raise. So, between all of that stuff, yeah, no, I, of course it's not going to work. Uh, the Democrats are going to get routed. Um, there's, and, and, you know, I think anybody who thinks that 
most Americans are sitting around still talking about and digesting the historical events of January 6, 2021, is high. Uh, there is just that's just not true. I mean, I who hears anybody talk about that? There's some you know extremely militant Democrats who are furious about that and will rage about it. But they're going to vote Democratic no matter what. Uh, that investigation is not bringing anyone new to the table. It's not going to bring anyone, any new uh, sort of reluctant registered Democrats who might not have otherwise voted. It's not going to get them to turn out uh, this fall. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's absurd. I mean, you, in a midterm election, the way you nationalize it is the way that Newt Gingrich did in 94. You have to have a, a platform that uh, all of your candidates agree to. It has to be simple. But was it the contract with America? Exactly. It has to be optimistic and affirmative. Now, I, I personally, obviously, I'm, I'm not a Republican, but it was a brilliant way to nationalize. I remember as a rush baby, I remember hearing that all the time as a kid in the 90s. <laughs> so, so trust me, it, it worked on my parents. <laughs> yeah, it was a big, yeah, it, it, it worked on a lot of people. And it's, mm-hmm it forced Bill Clinton into sort of a co-presidency with Gingrich for about a year and a half. Um, So, you know, something that we'd never seen before really in this country. And you know what? It's so funny too, because I know just being, and you know, having family that's Republican, um, I'm kind of the outlier, but I remember any time you bring up Clinton, they're like, Oh, well, Newt Gingrich was, if it wasn't for Newt Gingrich, he was the one that kept him in line. And you still hear that from Republicans to this day, especially on Fox news too. So it's interesting, you know, that you say, oh, is the co-presidency? Oh, yeah, they definitely look at it that way. Yeah, they're not really 100 percent wrong at all um, about that. So, uh, you know, I mean, Democrats are, are they're flailing. And I think, you know, whenever you find yourself sort of uh, sort of hoping against hope that something's going to work, you know, oh, you know, they're, we'll, we'll, we'll get them motivated by fear of Donald Trump. It's like maybe, you know, maybe, but that's just, that's not a strategy. Hope is not a strategy. It's a good, look, I think for myself, in fact, one of the other articles that came out was talking about the youth vote. And they were basically arguing that they were, the youth vote is existential to Democrats. Kind of like the black vote is existential to Democrats. If they lose a few percentage points, then they have a hard time really getting elected. And so their thing was basically the youth vote. And they were asking them, look, what do you need in order for you to vote Democrat? And their basic thing was the most, expected thing in the world. We need you to get things accomplished. We have a lot of things that are dark in our future going forward. And that is something we need you to do. And it needs to be something that hits our wallet. So of course, they have no way to get these kids um, short of basically screaming that Donald Trump is going to eat babies once again. And mind you, this whole young generation, you know, this is a generation where they're on TikTok and they're seeing instant gratification, you know, buy my merch and it comes on Amazon Prime in two days. You know, it's like this generation and, and there have been number, a number of studies on this where this upcoming generation is probably going to be the most conservative generation we've seen because they're going to be so sick and tired of all of these rules between having to deal with lockdowns as kids, between having to deal with other people saying, oh, you know, we're going to you, you can't say this because that's wrong and you're going to hurt so and so's feelings when, mind you, you say anything, somebody's feelings are going to get hurt. And it's also this generation where, hey. We're not going to just simply and, you know, very much almost like what you said in the 90s, Ted, where people were like, you know, where, where you know, Newt came out with that whole contract with America and seeing that those uh, plans implemented. Kids today are like, you got to persuade me. 
You know, like you see it with YouTubers every day. YouTubers, and I only know this because I have nieces and nephews where kids get canceled and then they have to go back in the good graces to get their fans back and start doing stuff right away to get their fans back. Politicians, you know, government is designed to move slow. And I think kids understand that. However, they're not seeing anything done. You know, they were promised two years ago, college, you know, free college debt. And we're still waiting. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, they're not even. The truth is, though, <clears throat> the Biden administration isn't even talking about those youth issues, right? So student loan forgiveness isn't even in the news as something that Republicans are blocking and that Democrats want. It's not even a topic of conversation. There's no discussion whatsoever at a time of record high housing prices of how to make uh, purchasing a first home more affordable for younger Americans or uh, or how to make, um, you know, the new generation of electric cars affordable. Yeah. And these kids are saying that their own parents can't afford it even right now. Their parents in their 40s. Yeah. Ted, we're going to have to end this. Thank you, my man. Really appreciate these Thank conversations. You, Ted. Ted Roll is an American columnist, syndicated editorial columnist and author. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Bronzak, back in a moment for the 8 o'clock hour. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. That would mean you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. All right, great conversation with Ted Rawl. Always love having Ted. Yeah, Ted he has been with us forever, for years at this point. Um, even before I got here, um, Ted Roll was here. And look, he's come on like at least once a week. He's always been great for coming on in case of emergencies. I just like his, his, his views on New York. And I like it. Like I said, it's not a conspiracy that all of these things went wrong. But as even somebody, I forget who said it, who dubbed it in the chat. Sorry, I, for, I should have remembered your name. But a symphony of stupidity. They, they added a little bit more to uh, Ted's... Um, yeah, a symphony of stupidity. Very basic just... stuff. If you have a camera, it should work. Very basic. That's not, I don't even think that's controversial, right? Well, it, it, it honestly made me think last night, okay, then I don't ever want to hear the argument of a police state again because our cameras <laughs> don't even freaking work. You know, it seven, like haphazardly catching seven people. cameras, seven cameras didn't work. Wow. They didn't work with Jeffrey Epstein either, didn't you know. Work with Epstein. But, but again, what's what's so weird is this guy had a YouTube channel, and even people in the channel were saying, "If this guy had a YouTube channel, how in the hell was he not taken down? They're yeah, taking down people left them? and right." Yeah, it's like you you're know? showing up at people's houses. Hey, we saw you said this about ALC. Where did you see that? You said it on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Like it can be that. So how on earth were they unable to get you this? It's just, look, it's but not even that. If he was saying all this crazy, wacky stuff, again, like they said. You say, hey, I stand with Russia, and I'm saying that as an example. I'm not saying that, so you don't have to take it out of context. But, like, if you were to go on YouTube, like like Lee Stranahan, where he has on his Twitter, I stand with Russia, and, you know, they're, they're taking down people like that left and right on YouTube or demonetizing him. How yeah. this guy went under the radar. It's like, what? Now, granted, he might have had, like, three followers, yeah. but, you know. Well, because, you know, it does sound like he was a bit loony. So, yeah, they might not necessarily had a huge number of following, but at the very least, 
Hammer should have caught him. Well, here's the other thing, though, too. You know, I remember the 96 Olympics. And, you know, when there was the whole bombing and, oh, God, what was his name? Chat, tell me what was his name. They accused him of the bombing. Oh, I remember that. The white guy. Um, he was innocent for that. But Richard, they smeared his yeah, name. Richard, oh, God, what was his name? In Atlanta. I remember that. I remember that. Six bombing. Because the media kept reporting as if this if this guy was guilty. And not so Richard much. Jewell. Thank you. Richard Jewell. And here they went after him. The FBI was telling him, you know, having it, you know, there's a bomb in the, in the park, having him say it over and over and over again, trying to get the guy to act like they knew, you know, like, oh, yep, yep, we're on it. We're so good. I mean, who knows if this guy was an easy, easy target. Hey, here's this rando on YouTube saying some crazy stuff. Well, it does say Let, they let's, don't. Let's pick him. No, as a flat fat, it was him. They would say that it's like he's a suspected suspect or yeah, something. Yeah, he's a person of interest. Yeah. But again, that's where I think, you know, uh, and then the fact that it's a black guy and if they're wrong on this. It burns me when I hear stuff like that could be done with just issues of cash. Like we, are, because to me, it's like we're sending all of this money to all of these various countries. It's something very basic like um, television camera. That should work. That should work. I mean, what's the point of having it there if it's not doing the job of actually recording the people who are being there? And the moment that you have something like this and you have all of those cameras that don't work, that is monstrously horrible. I mean... Green Fang saying it's probably a Nigerian. No, he's an American. He's yeah. an American black man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is unfortunate. We'll, but yeah, if, if this is a Richard Jewell situation... <laughs> they will be held to pay if it is. They will be actually, held to- well, no. For Richard Jewell, they weren't. I'm curious, what happened to him after that? Oh, he ended up, I mean, he was he was overweight, but yeah. um, he ended up dying of a heart attack very they young. they smeared him completely. They smeared him, yeah. and he won a number of cases. It was CNN, the New York Times, um, and it was also, the big one, though, was the Atlanta paper. Yeah. I can't remember the exact um, paper and what it was, but, they yeah. They were full-throated after the guy. Yeah, but it was it was the FBI that was that was moving in on it, and, and the paper... You know, that is why now with with papers and that's where I'm saying, like with this Washington Post case with Johnny Depp here against Amber Heard, notice she didn't put his name in there. Um, you know, I'm not saying that that's because of Richard Jewell, but people have learned from Distance the past. Enough. Yeah, just since enough know? to implicate him like that. And but yeah, he went on to sue them and won. But, you know, he it completely turned his life upside down. They, they called him a criminal. And here he was just like this Paul Blart mall cop. Yeah. In the middle of a park. Just random guy. And actually, you know, kind of helped people. But, you know, yeah. Random guy. It was really, really sad. They ran with it. But listen to this. Let's get into the headlines. In COVID news, life expectancy increased every year in the United States with very few exceptions until 2020 when it dropped. Now, 2021, making it a trend. Latest figures released by the CDC show in 2021 was the deadliest year in U.S. history with over 3.4 million deaths about 80,000 more than 2020, which have been the deadliest year in U.S. history up to date. And again, a lot of that is because of COVID, right? I mean, we had nearly a million people die of COVID. I don't know what the numbers are today, but before we stop doing those numbers, those numbers have gotten all the way up to 900,000. Epicenter. Epicenter. I mean, we can wag our finger at Shanghai all we want. At the end of the day, the number of people that have died in the United States is appalling. Um, maybe there was a middle ground between those things, but we sure didn't find it. New York authorities have identified 62-year-old Frank James as a person of interest in the ongoing manhunt for the gunman who donned a reflective vest when, when, when he opened fire on the subway in Brooklyn Sunset Park neighborhood on Tuesday morning, wounding at least 29 individuals who needed further medical treatment. 
The South Dakota House of Representatives on Tuesday impeached Attorney General Jason Ravensbourg over a 2020 car crash in which he killed a pedestrian. According to Ravensbourg's initial claim, he said he might have struck a deer or another large animal, but it was later revealed he killed a person. Ravensbourg, a Republican, is the first official to be impeached in South Dakota history. New York Lieutenant, New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Britton Benjamin resigned on Tuesday just hours after being indicted on bribery and fraud charges tied to an illegal campaign finance scheme. The former state senator tuned himself or turned himself in Tuesday morning and was charged with five counts in connection with his failed bid for New York City Comptroller last year. Benjamin is accused of working with real estate developer in order to arrange thousands of dollars of illegal campaign donations, where in exchange, Benjamin's allegedly dictated state funds to the investor. Basically, give me cash. I'll make sure that that gets put back to you. The president of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, all NATO countries, are headed to Kiev in a show of support for Ukraine and due to meet the Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky. This is as the U.S. president, Joe Biden, calls Russia action in Ukraine a, quote, genocide for the first time, saying, quote, Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of there ever being a Ukraine, unquote. Curious. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he will not resign after being fined for breaking his own government's pandemic lockdown rules, saying he will instead redouble his efforts to strengthen the economy and combat Russian aggression in Ukraine. On Tuesday, London police fined Johnson and others for attending a birthday party thrown for the prime minister at his Downing Street offices in June of 2020. The penalty made Johnson the first British prime minister ever to have broken the law while in office. This isn't minor. <laughs> this isn't minor. But yeah, he's still like, yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to redouble my efforts against Russia. That's great. Pope Francis defends the Vatican's uh, decision to have Russian women and Ukrainian women carry the cross together during a Good Friday procession uh, that will be presided over by the pontiff. Both the Ukrainian ambassador to the Holy City and the Archbishop of Kiev blasted the choice. The two women are nurses who work together at Rome Hospital. In tech news, yikes, CNN Plus has gotten off to the wrong foot as it struggled to gain viewers just two weeks after its launch, CNBC reported on Tuesday. Citing people familiar with the matter, CNBC reported that CNN Plus is only raking in fewer than 10,000 viewers a day, a far cry from its 773,000 daily viewers on its YouTube channel. 10,000 a day, that's it? That's like one episode of Door, to put it in perspective. I mean, like their YouTube channels, they get more than that. In Earth and Science News, NASA has determined that the size of the largest comet seen with the Hubble Space Telescope, estimating it to be 80 miles across, which is bigger than the state of Rhode Island. Well, according to the American Space Agency, the comet is shooting through the universe at speeds of 22,000 miles per hour, traveling right from the edge of the solar system and headed right towards Earth. Always amazed how they can track those things. In business news, Elon Musk's Twitter saga continued on Tuesday when shareholders sued the billionaire over his delayed disclosure of his stake in the social media giant. According to the lawsuit filed Tuesday in Southern District Court of New York, shareholder Mark Bain Rizella alleged that Musk made, quote, materially false and misleading statements and omissions by failing to disclose to investors his 9.2% ownership stake in a timely manner in violation of the Securities Exchange Commission regulations. Rizella slammed the billionaire and claim his delay caused him to lose money during his sale of the stock. Uh-oh, people don't like to lose cash. In our crazy story for today, opponents of Brazilian right-wing president Ayer Bolsonaro 
are demanding answers after it was revealed that the country's armed forces had spent a large sum of money to buy tens of thousands of male enhancement pills. Male enhancement pills. Make it bigger. Brazilian lawmaker Elias Vaz called on Bolsonaro to explain why his administration splashed a significant amount of money to buy a large quantity of Viagra pills. According to the reports, the Brazilian Navy and Air Force office offered an explanation for the purchase, claiming that the drug was supposedly being used to treat pulmonary hypertension. Sure it was. Sure it was. I get the feeling that pulmonary drugs treat pulmonary hypertension, not necessarily boner pills. But hey, each his own, well, right? Was, they were what? They were pilots, they said? They might have, uh, let's see, we're here. Uh, demanding answer reveal oh, is spending Navy, a lot of money. Oh, the Navy and Air Force. That makes, yeah. that's, makes some, some, some sense. Some level of sense. They use it as, what, like a um, beta blocker or something like that for the heart. Possible. I get the feeling that there were other items. But yeah, it's a funny story. Let's put it mildly. In holiday news, we have International Creativity and Innovation Day. That should be every day. That should be every day. I swear to God, that should be every day. That should be beat into our children um, as they go to school and everything else. We want to have a better world. Got to start with the kids, right? An International Day of Pink, April 13th, 2022. We have International Special Librarians Day. That's nice. National Peach Cobbler Day. Don't eat it, but I'm have at it. Plant Appreciation Day, Scrabble Day, and Thomas Jefferson Day. Thomas Jefferson Day. Keep those statues. I don't care if you had slaves. In historical dates, in 1997, Tiger Woods became the youngest ever golfer to win the Masters Tournament. In 1970, an oxygen tank explodes when Apollo 13, leaving the spacecraft crippled. You have to see the movie with Tom Hanks, Apollo 13. It would give all of this stuff a particular context and everything else. Houston, we have a problem. What's that problem? Everything falls apart. These guys have barely little technology on that spacecraft. And all of the permutations they had to go through in order to get back home, being frozen in space, all of that stuff. It is an astonishingly good story. Um, but let's keep going. The world's first satellite navigation system is launched in 1960. And in 1964, where's performance of Lil- Lilies of the Field, Sidney Poitier became the first African-American to win the Academy Award for Best Actor. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas. Bronzac. The Sydney Portier thing, I always talk about the Harlem Renaissance. You know, I always talk about it in the context of the way there was a perspective of the African-American community going forward in the country that was basically used to legitimize kind of the, the system that we had in operation, this two-tier system of better versus second class. And then you get people who are doing amazing things in art, amazing things in literature or education. And all of a sudden, the perspective of those people is like, oh, wait, these are regular people just like us. We can't underestimate the impact of shows like Will and Grace, shows like The Cosby Show, or other shows that basically bring people into this kind of— Roseanne. Or Roseanne, third-person perspective of life on our, in our country. And allows us, in a way, to see ourselves in those people in a way we don't necessarily be able to see ourselves, just in a normal interaction in which way we engage. Meaning, if I'm just bouncing around with you, I don't know anything about you. I mean, I have all sorts of preconceptions and ideas in my head in you that I will force you to fit into. There's that. The moment you see that stuff as a third person, you start thinking to yourself, okay, is there something more? Are there more to these people in the way that I see these people? It's a dramatic, important symbolism um, in the way that it's operated. The whole being seen stuff, I do think, has some level of real-world phenomena effect. So, um, but listen to this. Let's go into your, um, your segment. Parents' fault. I always enjoy these. I always like yeah, to just sit back and take a break watch. first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so, let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Bronzak. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault 
Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And this is one of my favorite parts of the show. I get to sit back and listen to my co-host do her thing. Farron, what is your fault for the day? So having been in the television news industry for probably about 15 years now, very interesting seeing what's going on in the media and how the ratings are taking quite the dive. And maybe it's because of stuff like this. You had in one article, so it's the same guy, the same guy. Let me get his exact name. Um, Victor Medvichuk. Victor Medvichuk, if you know Ukraine on fire or revealing Ukraine, specifically revealing Ukraine, he is the one guy who is a Ukrainian. Um, he's the lar- Ukrainian's largest opposition leader opposition party leader where he was against corruption. He was against a lot of privatization. He actually grew up in Serbia. I'm sorry, not Serbia, Siberia. Grew up in Siberia, went to law school at the University of Kiev. And actually, Putin happens to be his daughter's godfather. However, he is a Ukrainian. His wife even big Ukrainian actress and a producer producing shows like Ukraine's Got Talent and, and, and shows like that. The minute that all of this Ukraine stuff started happening in 2014, especially with the Maidan coup, as many of you all know, you know your stuff. That's why you're watching this show. She had all of her stuff pulled um, because it was very much Victor Medvedchuk was against what was going on and the West's influence in regards to the Maidan coup. You have two headlines today, one coming out of the BBC and one coming out of RT. And thank you to producer Eddie for bringing this to my attention. The BBC, it's, it's, it's literally a tale of two narratives. From the BBC, it reads, quote, Fugitive Putin ally Medvedchuk arrested, says Ukraine Security Service. Okay. RT. The leader of Ukraine's largest opposition party, Viktor Medvedchuk, has been arrested by Ukrainian authorities. Medvedchuk is the leader of opposition platform for life and is critical of Ukraine's embrace of the West. Leader of the opposition party, fugitive Putin ally. This is the kind of crap that I think, honestly, people are sick and tired of. And it's being shown when you look at cable and media ratings, okay? We have, for those that don't know, they're called sweeps. So you have usually about every three months, you have what's called like a sweeps period where it's a good month where there are, your ratings are registered every single day. Now you can go in through TV, like for example, through Comscore and look and see what show ranked number one every single day. Cable news is actually starting to do that. But back when I first got into television, they used to only do it by ratings period by every three months. So for example, we are in, we have just finished up what they would call like February sweeps where it's like kind of the end of February, middle of March. So all of the news ratings are starting to come out via like that chunk of the month, okay? But again, you can go look every day. But again, they just clump it into these high ratings months. That's why, and you always know when you're in, for another thing for TV people or for to, to understand, 
you always know when it's a sweeps period because you'll see like your local news anchors or you'll see cable news anchors if you still even watch. But you'll see like, I have this big investigation. I looked into all of this and they have like a big promo for it. Then you know you're in a sweeps period because that's when a lot of news anchors, they get into these big stories that they do again once every three, four months. So the Honorable Glenn Greenwald comes out and breaks down the demographic viewers and how many people are actually watching the mainstream media. He says, quote, even with a major ongoing war, the continued disappearance of MSNBC and CNN's audience is extreme and rapid. The number of viewers under 55 watching MSNBC's primetime shows is barely 100,000 or less. These are mid-level YouTube numbers, which is, which is very, very true. You see the highest rated show on CNN, which makes sense because it's usually the 8 p.m. hour in TV news. Primetime news is 7, 8, 9, and 10. Usually the primetime hour is the 8 p.m. hour because people have just watched. And then again, this is back into like you learn all this in journalism school. But you have your 6 p.m. hour that's kind of your local news or your, your special like your special report with Brett Baer, your top line news because it's supposed to be everybody sitting down at the dinner table seeing what happened, you know, when everybody comes home for the day back in the 1950s when people could still do that. Then it was people had their two hours to do their after dinner chores. And then it was the 8 p.m. hour was when people actually sat down on their couches as a family. You know, like I said, this is just from J school. What You learn how a 1950s family would have lived. But so the 8 o'clock hour, though, has always been that primetime slot, which is why you had the likes of Tucker Carlson tonight in the Fox News slot, all in with Chris Hayes for the MSNBC slot, and Anderson Cooper 360. Those are your three top guys, okay? Tucker Carlson... 2.7 million. Chris Hayes, 1.1 million. So under half of Tucker's. Anderson Cooper, and this is even shocking to me, 755,000 people. Mind you, the other one are in the millions, okay? This is a cable news show where... Everybody, this is CNN, the most trusted name in news. Apparently not. So Glenn goes on to say the one time CNN has historically thrived is wartime, which is very true. You think of the war in Iraq. You think of Afghanistan. You think of all of their war correspondents that they've had. Um, their national security correspondents that reach out to do a story on you. <laughs> you know, you have all these people where they're all of these Many, many, mainly CNN, you know, and they're one of the people too. You don't hear about like Fox News International. Like CNN has an international bureau. They have CNN London. They have CNN Nairobi, Kenya. You can even see in a lot of their promos, they have, you know, a lot of bureaus around the world and they've always been known as thriving during wartime, as Glenn says. Yet, he goes on, they're back to their paltry, humiliating pre-war numbers. Barely a half a million total viewers in prime time. These are dying networks. Nobody has interest. Their solution, let's make people pay to watch, is just sad. We told you how there's less than 10,000 people watching in their new CNN Plus that they have to pay for. For those that, you know, aren't aware, it's like Discovery Plus. 
what was another one? Um, HBO Max. Huh? HBO Max. Yeah, but I mean, I'm trying to think of, of, of the prices because I think they're doing $3.99 or $4.99 a month and I could just compare it to Discovery Plus. But Discovery Plus bought Time Warner. So now it's this little, it's not a duopoly, but they say Discovery Plus Time Warner or Discovery Inc. Time Warner. Now he goes on to say, that doesn't mean that these networks have zero influence, however. They are part of a huge corporate conglomerate that can blast the content with major online and offline megaphones. Political media elites still watch, but the public appetite for these two partisan DNC liberal networks is gone. He goes on, as I was just saying, which corporate geniuses decided the way to save CNN from the fact that nobody wants to watch their hosts for free is to make people pay to watch those same hosts sprout the same trite, partisan, superficial bull. Beep. The only new anchor you have over there is Chris Wallace, who was from Fox. Nothing. You might want to rethink that, Chris. Um, but again, fewer than 10,000 people are using CNN Plus. Folks, they poured so much money into this app. And I don't, I don't want to sit there and say, ha ha, like, ha ha ha, no one's watching you because I understand. Well, no, here's my thing is I understand as a news anchor, I understand how much thought and how much work goes into putting together specials and doing all this kind of stuff. I just realized another one that, that they were trying to counter. Duh, I don't even know why I missed it. Uh, Fox Nation. Fox Nation is usually three or four ninety nine a month, I think maybe, but it's free for veterans um, and, and first responders. But, you know, Fox, they poured a lot of money into theirs and they've had it now for almost two years. CNN Plus trying to do this. I mean, the programming, literally like what Glenn Greenwald said, because I, I, I watched it so you don't have to. It's literally these anchors, but they're just doing longer form interviews. And it's not even any really, there's not even any real difference. Unlike with Fox Nation, they actually do pretty damn good documentaries like the Janine Pirro, Where is Hunter Biden? Tucker Carlson did a deep dive on um, Chicago, on the crime wave that was happening there. Um, he did one on windmills <laughs> with Trump and his windmills. You know, but yeah, I mean, they have they have some pretty good programming. Not that I agree with it, but I'm just saying they've got a lot more better programming than just CNN having their talking head anchors, you know, have longer form interviews. You can, you can, and here's the problem is that these networks see, and, and again, at least Fox saw that they wanted something different kind of programming because again, if you're on Discovery Plus, which is why I think they went with CNN Plus having these talking heads just have longer form interviews is because Discovery Plus already has all these documentaries. I mean, it's this, it's, you know, Travel Channel, HGTV, um, Animal Planet. They already have their documentaries on their own platform. So it's like, what, do you, what were you going to do differently with CNN Plus? Um, but again, the fact that you have such a dip in CNN and MSNBC and you have such a rise. I mean, folks, 755,000. I've seen Jimmy Dore have higher numbers than that. You know, like there was during the height of, of the COVID stuff with where you had the progressive break break between those that wanted to go with COVID and those that didn't. I mean, he was averaging 849K, 999K. There was a couple where he got a million. I mean, it's, it's pathetic. Yeah, exactly. And then when they try to take them down from YouTube, those are going to be Rockfin numbers or Odyssey numbers or Rumble numbers or what have you. But that's, that's the difference. And, and the one thing that's really funny and the big, big difference you're going to see here that's, that's 
truly astonishing is when you have people like a Jimmy Dore or us, or you have, you know, a Glenn Greenwald, they are across multiple platforms to make sure that if they get shut down on one, they have it all backed up to go to the other. You know, like I had a number of monologues that I did for RT America. I can't go back and get them now. And I had some amazing monologues on there, like where I compared millionaires to Batman and and how we were all a bunch of jokers and people loved it. Um, Because, you know, it it takes time. It takes thought. That's why I get it with these anchors where it's hard work and to have only 10,000 people watch you. That sucks. Um, But yeah, with that said, is you have all of these people spread across platforms like your Glenn Greenwalds and your Jimmy Dores so you can't never really register a full number if you and you have to go, okay, what were their number rumble numbers? What were their YouTube numbers? What were their Odyssey numbers? What were their Rockfin numbers? And I guarantee you, if you were to add up all of these numbers across the board, that you would see that they are higher than CNN for the and they have been that way probably for the past year. I wouldn't be shocked. And that's where I think you have this old model of the cable news, of the fear, 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 you know, the Putin price hike, Putin price hike. It's almost like they're 10 years behind Fox News and people have gotten smarter than that now. You know, I will give it to Fox News. They know how to keep an audience. They, they really do. And they, they, they figured out new ways on how to beat propaganda. But again, Roger Ailes back in the day, you know, if you've ever seen, for example, Bombshell, or if you've ever seen um, the the loudest voice where it's all about Roger Ailes and it's with Russell Crowe where he plays him. But he, and mind you, he was a perv, but he goes through it. He was, he was a, a, an evil genius where he knew exactly how to hook people in, hook, line, and sinker, where he's like, nope, the girls need to wear heels. Nope. I Folks, and I'll, I'll even say this. <laughs> he created the cable news anchor. Before Roger Ailes hit Fox News, do you know what I wore every night as a news anchor at 25 years old at Fox and South Bend? We were wearing pantsuits. All news anchors, we all wore pantsuits and suit jackets wherever, whether we were at the anchor desk or we were out at interviews. And then all of a sudden Fox News came around and it was like, whoa, we got to start wearing dresses. Right. <laughs> you know? And that's where, and, and granted, yes, it, it sexualized it, but that's the thing that's crazy about it is that they, he knew exactly how to hook people in. He knew exactly how to hook his audience in. And then it was the constant, re, you know, repeating the war on terror, the war on terror, war on terror. They dubbed the war on terror. That wasn't a government dub. That Fox News dubbed it the war on terror. You know, and that's where I, I see CNN is like 10 years behind. All I can say is, this might be the only time we can at least say thanks, Fox News, because you woke us up and now we're not buying any of the crap anymore, you know? But it's, 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 it's truly, <sighs> I don't know. Oh, thank you, Richie. All my, all my shows are archived. Oh, thank God. I, <laughs> I was looking for some the other day. But yeah, it's one of these things where it's, it's sad to see cable news shoot down like this because of how just seedy and how just dirty it is now. But at the same time, it, it, it gives me more hope that people aren't watching because they've woken up to the fact that they're, they're being fed lies. And it makes me feel like, hey, I, fi- I made that right decision going to RT America. I made that right decision where I went somewhere where no one was going to tell me what to say. You know, because again, do you think anybody at CNN... Anyone is allowed to say, 
hey, hang on, a, hang on a second. Should we maybe look at Russia's point of view for a second? Oh, you'd be out. That would never be allowed. Real quick. That would never be allowed. Yeah. That just would not so be So at allowed. least, you know, and again, yeah, Fair and Fox is a parody. Of course it is. But again, at least people realize that now, 10 years after the fact, and now we're all woke, and we can look at CNN and say, you are a joke. You're a woke joke. And by the way, you know, the guy that Stelter brought on, who was doing that study with Fox and basically mm-hmm. saying they were paying people and everything else. The Yale, the Yale researcher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Stelter, he turns to Stelter and like, yeah, you guys do it too. You're the same. You and that's the thing is, is we were talking about this Monday is like, do you think they honestly realize that, you know, where, when Brian Stelter was asked, he's like, you know, by that college yeah. freshman, he's like, you know, I, I, I see a different, I'm watching a different yeah, channel. I have no you. idea what channel you're talking it's about. Like, well, of course you are. Yeah. And then the guy <laughs> turns around to his own guys like, yeah, dude, you do that too. Is, like, is that a false equivalence there? No, it's an equivalence. Yeah. It's equivalent. No well, false. Well, not even that. It's, and, and here's the one thing that I will say, and I, this, I will give Tucker Carlson credit. He says, I work at Fox, but I, I am not Fox. You know, whereas Brian Stelter, he has to defend his network. Yes, he is. Yeah, so that's where he's like, I, I'm seeing a different network. Well, of course you are, because you work there. And if you say something different, you're going to have to find another job, you know. But, but it, at least it, it is very, like I said, I bask in the failure but at the same time, I feel bad because I, I thought that the United States might have learned to be a little bit different, but clearly we haven't. And that's where we see the rise of alternative media. And I couldn't be happier. Could not be happier. And that means that you folks are supporting alternative media because right now, in order for people to do this kind of job, it calls on people to support, like on their Rockfins, on their Patreons, what have you. And you know what? People are giving them money. And you know what? Good for them. Good for you to keep true journalism going. All of you out there. Yeah, so. absolutely agree. And look, it's a change, right? I mean, radio was a disruptive medium in the Second World War. Um, television, I would imagine, was another disruptive media. And now you have that media being, bif- not just bifurcated, um, diffused through all of these various peoples and points of view and everything else. And it seems like the center. In this case, CNN and maybe uh, uh, they can't hold. So mm-hmm. we'll see. But agree all the way through. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak. We're coming back with Susan Pye. She's a great guest on immigration um, immigration is starting to take a center stage in regards to Biden pulling Title 42 away. And what is it going to mean for the number of immigrants coming into the country? Is Kamala Harris going to go finally go to the border? I think she went once. Is she going to go back? Is Biden going to go? And is Biden, the president, going to deem that to be important enough to visit? You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. I'm Farron Franzek alongside my co-host Jamarl Thomas. Breaking literally moments before we get to our, da- our, our guest. First Texas bus drops off migrants blocks from the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. A bus from Texas arrived in D.C. Wednesday morning transporting dozens of illegal immigrants as part of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's new plan to counter federal immigration policies during an ongoing border crisis. As we know, Abbott announced last week, the bus pulled up at approximately 8 a.m. local time, blocks away from the U.S. Capitol. Individuals disembarked one by one, except for family units who exited together. They checked in with officials and had wristbands they were wearing cut off before being told they would go. They're here. 
They're here. I'm looking. Yeah. How weird is Abbott's that? Abbott's plan wow. is already working. And some question whether it was going to work or not. I mean, is it even legal? I mean, if they're illegal aliens, as they call them, I hate that term. But if they are not, yeah, that's wild. I mean, we have a guest. We can ask her to yeah. figure out the legalities <laughs> around it. There's no point in going back and forth. We're joined with Susan Pye. She's a nationally recognized speaker and writer. She's a front page featured Huffington Post writer on immigration issues and has submitted congressional testimony on humanitarian immigration issues. Susan, thank you for joining us. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Good morning. I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Always enjoy having you. Um, so Biden announced he's going to end Title 42. And this is basically the Trump era border control policy that allowed him to expel migrants before allowing those migrants to request asylum. Now, despite many people in Biden administration calling this illegal, um, depraved, and other choice words for it. Biden has still put a pause on that, not necessarily wanting the optics of being hit from people saying, hey, look at the border increase, and that's based on policies that you basically did or at the very least removed. And so now you have people like Abbott who are sending immigrants um, who are, I guess, not supposed to be in the country to the Capitol in D.C. to make his point. What is your take on this? Um, and let's just start with that since that's where Ferrant started. What is your take on him sending immigrants to the Capitol? A, is that helpful? And B, is it even legal? Well, I, I think it's, there's nothing wrong with him doing it technically, um, but it seems to me to be a waste of resources for his state because, um, you know, whether or not a publicity stunt like that has an impact on the very real and substantive issues that need to be addressed, you know, remains to be seen. No, that's fair. The removal of Title 42, do you think, what effect do you think that's going to have? I mean, and is Biden right to be concerned about an influx of immigration if he removes it? Well, it's, it's sort of a double-edged sword. He is and he isn't, because one thing that a lot of people don't understand is under Title 42, there was no punishment associated with being expelled from the United States, um, meaning uh, you could be later prosecuted for criminal reentry if you attempted to come in again after being previously removed at the border. So with Title 42 expulsions, um, we had, I think it was unprecedented rates of recidivism, especially from single males um, from Mexico. So let's say that they were expelled under Title 42 before. They would just keep coming back and there would be no penalty associated with them making repeated you know, entries into the United States. Now, if Title 42 is lifted and they go back to expedited removal proceedings, then if a person is encountered at the border or presents at the border and they are expeditiously removed from the border and then they attempt to reenter, they can then be criminally prosecuted for illegal reentry, which carries a, a prison sentence of up to two years. If they were uh, originally removed because of a, a criminal or a certain crimes uh, and a felony crime, um, they can actually be prosecuted and serve up to 10 years in prison. So that greatly reduce, will reduce the number of recidivist entrants at the border. So I, I actually lived uh, and I was a news anchor down in El Paso, Texas, uh, one of the big border points um, with Juarez, Mexico and El Paso. And I want to get your take because I, I talked to a number of Border Patrol agents, um, the head of CBP. Who do you think ran the border better, Obama, Trump or Biden? If you could if you could kind of look and see the way that it's it's been going, because I they have their take. I'm interested in your take. You know, I, I think that we saw egregious 
uh, decisions being made by all three administrations, you know, first with the Obama administration uh, detaining family units, which included very young children. And then with Trump, we had very onerous um, policies, you know, from the perspective of an immigration lawyer, for example, our advocate. And then under, under Biden, we seem to have um, we have a mix of the two where he's holding over some policies from the Trump administration, but then also aspiring to some Obama administration uh, legacy policies. So if you were to ask me, I would say that no administration has uh, adequately even come close to addressing the border issues, the fundamental issues, the substantive procedural issues and the resource issues. Get into that for the moment. What would that look like? Meaning if they actually came to the table and say, okay, we need to deal with our immigration system. You've been on the show before discussing this. And look, I was shocked at how dysfunctional our immigration system was. I mean, you made the point last time you were here that people who are trying to get immigration into the United States often have to spend like 10 years. And it's only a very tiny percentage that even get allowed in. So you think about it, when the person comes in, they have about, let's say, eight years where they're in the country. Then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, you're not allowed to stay any longer. You need to leave. Their life at this point has either been in the U.S. or on the outskirts of the U.S. trying to get into the country. And under Trump, I mean, the people under Biden, the people that were being deported weren't even being deported back to the country that they were living in prior to coming into the country. Like, it was just very weird stuff. First, correct me if I said anything wrong in that. And second, what would it look like if it was legitimately, in good faith, tried to be fixed? <laughs> Well, I think first and foremost, people need to understand that, you know, uh, immigrants or uh, foreign nationals have the right to claim asylum at the border. So that's a right that's afforded to them by our signature as uh, on international agreements or U.N. treaties, as well as in our own law. So I think if people have a fundamental issue with even allowing people to claim asylum at all, then they need to go back and look at the law and they need to look at what the U.S. is a signatory of and address it from that standpoint. But seeing as we're in the situation where that is the law, um, then it becomes a resource issue at the border to address all of the people who are claiming uh, asylum. So right now, for example, we have a one and a half million immigration case backlog. And they're talking about the way to address this is to hire 100 new immigration judges and 800, between 800 and 5,000 new asylum officers. So this is the thing that they're trying to put into effect um, about May to end of May when um, the Title 42 expulsions end. So, uh, but once, even at the border, if the additional, let, let's say we hire 5,000 new additional asylum officers and they adjudicate, you know, okay, this person has credible fear or reasonable fear and they let them into the country to make their case, um, the ones that they deny, uh, those people still get to appeal that denial to an immigration judge. So we have uh, one and a half million case log with an existing number of immigration judges we have now. And then we're supposed to address what is they estimate to be up to 500,000 a month um, to go, you know, if they're denied by the asylum officers at the border to go to the IJs as well, to the, go to the immigration judges. So that we simply don't have the immigration judge capacity to even come close to addressing all of these asylum cases. So, um, you know, so I, I, I don't know how else to explain it. It's just, we just don't have the resources. 
So all of these other measures that they're putting into place, if you don't have enough immigration judges to handle all the cases, then the people who are claiming asylum will be in the country. I think at last point I read an average of five years in the country before their case is heard. But I've seen many cases go as long as eight years. And by that time, people have children, they've been married to a U.S. citizen, um, they may have been the victim of a crime, et cetera. They have um, many other, you know, they've made their life in the United States and they may have other venues to become legalized. When you, having studied the immigration um, situation, you know, at firsthand, obviously, besides not having enough resources, what do you think is some of the big problems that need to be addressed. Um, again, having lived at the border, I saw a lot of this where you said like, yeah, these cases will take forever. Um, you know, and again, because there is a backlog, but are there other issues you think besides resources that are clogging the system? Like, you know, maybe red tape that could be lifted or, you know, kind of just from your experience, what do you think should be done as well besides just resources? Well, you know, the, the Biden administration through $1.5 billion in extra funding to CBP to address the border surge. And, and, uh, but the current rate of apprehensions and encounters at the border already exceeds um, those additional resources. So I don't think throwing money at the problem is enough. However, that being said, just to take a very small example, when it's very different um, if a single male Mexican presents at the border and, come and, and claims asylum than a family unit. So generally more latitude is given to the family unit. And so we have this really um, epidemic problem with uh, fake birth certificates being used by um, supposed family units when maybe the people are, are not actually related to them. So we know that immigration has used DNA evidence in the past, for example, to disprove uh, family relationships at the embassies in other countries, particularly Africa. Um, so, you know, if, if they're going to spend additional resources, you know, why not do a DNA test on if you have a single uh, male and then you have a, um, and then you have like a 17 year old child uh, because the 17 year olds are still considered children. Um, and then, you know, give them a DNA test and let them wait in detention until the DNA test comes back seven days later. I think that's a very small example of a problem that can be fixed by existing science or technology. You've, you've covered, you know, like you said, many cases. I mean, your, your, your credibility on this is obviously extensive. My question to you, um, when talking to many of these people, how do they, and this is actually kind of coming from the chat as well, all 480 of you. How do they view the United States? Because when you, for example, turn on Fox News, it's, oh, we're this land of many freedoms and we have all of this and they're escaping the oppression of socialism. And, you know, it's, it's how, you know, we're the greatest country in the world. However, you know, as many in the chat have said, maybe people wouldn't be striving to come here because the United States has messed up a lot of those countries. <laughs> you know, and, and so my question is, is how do they truly view the United States and coming here? Um, you know, just kind of as a general, what, what do you, what have you heard these people say? Well, I think if you're coming from a country where, you know, you can't even like protest the government, like in Nicaragua, or um, the government limits the supply of paper and ink because, you know, they don't want you to spread uh, uh, anti-government, you know, uh, what they call propaganda. Um you're living under like oppressive systems or you're in, in China and, you know, you're a Christian, 
then of course, you know, what America represents is something more than just a chance at, you know, a better economic life. It's better quality of life in general. But I think the overwhelming sentiment that I hear from people is that uh, if they're single, uh, single males in particular, it's a, a chance for a better economic life. If they're a family unit, it's they want a better life, you know, for their children. And then, and then you do have people, you know, who are like Christian from China or um, they're anti-government protesters from Nicaragua or, you know, but they, they definitely see the United States as their first choice. And the reason we know this is because they have to pass through other friendly countries that they could resettle in, like Costa Rica, to get to the United States. But they don't stop in Costa Rica. They keep going until they reach the United States. I want to hit that for a moment. Uh, the Mexico thing that you mentioned once before. There seems to be a lot of or influx of people going from Mexico coming into the United States. And it seems that part of that has to do with these kind of, I guess, drug gangs um, and this. It's not a war in the technical sense, but I guess you can call it a war in the practical sense between the Mexican government and those drug gangs that are basically on the border of the United States and having a large influx of people trying to basically escape the Mexican territory. Could you talk about that for a moment? I mean, am I hitting that correctly? Because there seems to be a large number of people coming from that. And I also want to hit inflation. Because there's an impact from the standpoint of immigration on inflation that I guess was my first time hearing about it, but it makes all the sense in the world. There were 1.8 million fewer working age immigrants in the United States today that would be the case in pre-2020 immigration trends that continued unchanged, economic researchers Giovanna Pira and Reem Zero estimated. Now, the point is worker shortages are pervasive with, um, vaccine, with vacancies hovering around record highs. The resulting disruptions to supply chains and normal business operations have raised costs with companies and consumers, some of these, quote, missing workers, unquote, retired, some drop out of the labor force because of care um, issues or illnesses, but a huge chunk of foreign-born workers who either never arrived in the United States in recent years or who already were here have been forced out of their jobs because of governmental incompetence. So basically, the immigration issue is not just an issue from the standpoint of the number of people at the border coming into the country. There's a second side of that that has to do with what they do in the country and the value to the United States that they basically bring to the country. And the fact that the immigration stuff has been so weird and wonky for all of this time frame, especially around COVID, inflation is made worse by the lack of immigration. How weird is that? Can you explain that or at the very least talk about that for a bit? Well, I, I don't think I could explain it any better than you just did, Jamal. But um, I, I will say this, and you and I have talked about this um, many times before, there, there is a need for immigrant labor. And uh, that was the case, you know, before the 1950s with like, for example, the Bracero program with Mexico that allowed temporary workers to come into the United States to fill positions, um, most of which Americans did not want to work at. And that need still exists today, if not more than it did before. But the programs that allow that kind of worker to come in, in and out of the country um, have greatly diminished. And so it's, it's being filled with, you know, maybe people like who are waiting for their asylum cases to be adjudicated within five, six, seven, eight years. Um, so I, I definitely agree with, you know, your take on, on the effect of immigration and um, the need for workers. And again, that is an endemic part of the immigration problem is that there is no real way to bring temporary, what we call low-skilled workers into the United States. So what ends up happening is um, they come under asylum or they come illegally to the United States. They stay here, they work here. Once they've been here for over a year, undocumented, however, if they leave the country, they'll be barred from coming back in for 10 years. 
So we call that the uh, 10-year bar. And one of the things that can be done to, you know, in conjunction with uh, um, creating a robust temporary worker program is to get rid of that 10-year bar so that people who want to return home and then just come here to work seasonally can. Yeah, that's a really good point. Let's go to the Mexico one for the moment. What is going on um, with AMLO? (laughs) <laughs> in regards to the Mexican thing, meaning, well, all these people, Mexico has this, I guess, impression for the most part of not necessarily being a country that is at war. I mean, yeah, war is war, right? But in this very specific case, it does seem like um, AMLO's government is at war with drug lords, especially around the border areas um, of the United States. What is going on with this? And has there been any, I guess, movement on this in order to kind of make this process better? Has the situation been getting worse? especially with the number of people who basically been coming from Mexico. I mean, you've mentioned it yourself in this interview. Okay. So um, if I understand you correctly, Jamal, you're talking about um, do we have a higher influx of Mexican immigrants because of the situation with drug cartels in Mexico? Exactly. Exactly. I see. Okay. So certainly if you look at the statistics, you see that the, if you look at the expulsion rates of unauthorized migrants encountered at the U.S.-Mexico border by nationality, from um, 2020 to 2022, uh, Mexico is definitely the, the highest number. They're at 90%. So they account for 90% of the um, expelled, um, unauthorized migrants encountered. And then after that would be Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, and Ecuador. Um, but by far and away, Mexico is, is the number one. So I definitely think that the, you know, the problem does exist where people are escaping the drug cartels and whatnot. Um, but on the other hand, it, the drug cartels are expanding their business, and they, they are also um, becoming part of the human smuggling. And going back to what you said at the very beginning uh, of, this ses- of this session is uh, that title, the, the ending of Title 42 certainly is going to be advertised by those human smuggling groups as an opportunity to claim asylum at the border. And because whether or not they believe you or not, you're, you're going to come into the United States. That's, that's the problem. And then the other thing that people don't know, um, uh, and it's not illegal, that's, that's the way the law is written. So that's the big misunderstanding I think the general public has. But the other thing that's legal, because, and again, because we're signatories onto UN conventions and in our own laws, uh, you can even have people who have been deported because of crimes, even very serious felony crimes, and they can uh, claim not asylum, but they can claim withholding of removal or convention against torture. And they also will be let into the country until their cases are heard by an immigration judge. And so I think that's where people on the right are talking about the criminals being let in and, and whatnot. And, you know, it's, it might not be a talking point that the Democrats like. I'm, I'm a Democrat. But the truth is, is that under withholding of removal and convention against torture, very serious criminals can be let back into the country while their cases are pending for five, six, seven, eight years. Now, I want to have you dispel a rumor here because, you know, we're seeing, as we had said at the top of the hour, that these uh, immigrants arrived from Texas here in D.C. And it says, you know, how they checked in with officials, had the wristbands they were wearing cut off and then just let go. Is that really what happens? I mean... I know the answer, at least what they do in El Paso, Texas, <laughs> but but from what you've seen and what you've covered, are you just let go like, see you later, friend for yourself? What happens? Well, CBP generally coordinates with uh, non-governmental or organizations, 
quite a bit in order to shelter, to offer shelter to um, the people that they release into the United States pending their uh, cases. And especially, um, you know, they're not allowed to hold uh, minors, you know, for over 20 days or family units for over 20 days. Um, in some cases, they will detain, you know, single male um, migrants um, in detention uh, for uh, maybe in some cases for years, you know, until their case comes up for hearing. Um, but family units and minors are different. So do they just kind of cut their wristbands off and let them out in the community? Not not for the most part, because like I said, they're coordinating with NGOs and shelters and things like that. The problem is, however, the way that they're notified of their case coming up is, and, and Jamal and I have talked about this before, is they get mailed a notice, you know, just in the regular mail. And obviously the vast, vast majority of these people who are released into the United States don't have a permanent address. So they don't have any way of knowing when their case comes up. And so they might not show up for court when they're supposed to. And then when they do find out, okay, you missed the court date, um, they find out that uh, that um, our government has mailed the notice to the wrong address or to an address they're no longer at. And then and that also postpones the case and the resolution of the case ultimately, and sometimes for years, often for years, I should say. And you're talking that they work with a lot of nonprofits or even shelters once they get out. They're going to say that, yeah, they're being dropped off blocks from the Capitol, but if you look at a map and see all of the different shelters in the area, they're all within a two, three block radius of the Capitol. So very easy to say they're dropping them off at the Capitol, but it's probably because they're going to a place literally blocks from the Capitol as she just mentioned, with these nonprofit groups and stuff like that. Makes for great TV. Makes for great TV. And for his talking points, for the governor, Abbott, like, look at what I've done. I'm giving it to D.C. Um, Susan, thank you for this. I really appreciate it. I always enjoy your visits. You are so knowledgeable on the subject. Susan Pye is a nationally recognized speaker and writer. She's a front-page featured Huffington Post writer on immigration issues and has submitted congressional testimony on humanitarian immigration issues. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak. Hit that rumble button, share that video. We're nearly at 500. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission Tower of Truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In the ladies' corner, My trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, American Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your last man on the wall, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Never had a yawn creep up on me like that. Hello. Good morning. There is something that is taking place right now that I am greatly aggravated by. I don't know if we, I don't know if we covered this. There's a lend lease program that the United States is implementing or trying to anyway, where the Senate basically comes out unanimously, including Blarney Sanders, who basically came out and these guys are basically trying to do what they were doing in the Second World War with Britain. And so it's like, so wait a minute, you're instituting a program or at the very least trying to, or the Senate is ratifying it. Um, the House of Representatives hasn't necessarily taken up yet, but I'd be shocked if they wouldn't. But this is basically what one of the precursors that got us into the Second World War. I mean, when you think about it, Hitler's, yes, Hitler declared war on the United States. But from his perspective, and no, it wasn't a good thing to do. But from his perspective, 
the weapons and the armaments, if the United States was going to arm the world and the U.S. is, from his perspective, a belligerent. And how could we say he's wrong in that, right? Ultimately, you had the Soviet Union and Britain basically being armed. Great that we did. It was one of the things that tipped the war. Only point I'm making here is from the standpoint of Russia, at what point does they consider this stuff belligerent? And do we really want to get to the point where we are coming up with this kind of Lend-Lease program in the way that we did in the Second World War? I don't know. It just seems... It's like nobody believes Ukraine is going to win this. Maripol is about to fall, even by Western sources at this point. The troops can't leave Kiev because they think Kiev is going to get sacked if they do leave Kiev. And so the fight is taking place in a dumbass. How long is it going to take all of that stuff to get to Ukraine? And will it get there in time frame where it would have any real consequences? And if they're not going to win that war, then why are you continuously giving them weapons like that? Like, it's, it's an aggravating thing. It seems that we're inching closer and closer and closer to involvement. This is just the one last thing that they've done. Mm, I don't think so. I think it's more that they just keep giving weapons because they want to keep having Putin annihilate more people to make him so that he goes down in history as the next Hitler. That's what they want. Yeah, that's what they want. That's what they want to try to do. The more weapons you keep giving, the the, the more you're going to prolong the war. And and Putin has said, you need to get rid of your weapons. It's that part. They want to prolong the war. And if, I think from their standpoint, all I, of these they, they guys They don't want to enter it, though. They for no, sure don't want to enter part. it. It's like, no, we won't, don't want to fight it. However, we do want you to fight it to the last day of Ukraine. It's just gross. It's like the fact that none of these guys believe they're going to win, and yet you're continuously keeping it going, keeping it going. It's like we need to have a cost associated with the fact that Ukraine loses. No, some of them think that they actually are going to win. Who thinks that Ukraine is going to win? Uh, you need to watch Fox News. Oh, jeez. I'm you need more to watch Fox News and CNN because you have, for example— Susan Murkowski was saying, you know, last week, if we just keep giving him more weapons, Ukraine's going to win it. Is she saying that or does she just believe it? I'm sorry, not Murkowski, uh, Jody Ernst. Does she believe it? Oh, no. She said that she had just walked out of intelligence meetings and they told her this. I mean, you got to tune into cable news for at least an hour today. I'll put it this way. After reading and break with ties from the West, the U.S. is using intel to fight an info war with Russia, even when the intel isn't rock solid. I mean, I guess my point is these guys have been lying voluminously to the American public. How do I know? that they actually believe that. When you're looking at the stuff that these guys saying behind the scenes and the European leaders, especially when they're talking in the military stuff, they don't believe they're going to win this. I mean, I I could entirely be wrong. Maybe some of these people are true believers and just on averages they alone, they of course. They don't believe it, but when you have a boss named Lockheed Martin or Raytheon, <laughs> you're going to believe anything that they damn say. More weapons, more weapons. You know? And oh, oh, I, I mean, for example, like you look at like, for example, um, Colonel McGregor who was ousted, who they also attributed him to liking Hitler and the Nazis. Everything today revolves around Nazis, and it's like this uh, Nazi obsession is freaking weird. McGregor has been right. But he doesn't he, he doesn't work for Lockheed Martin. He doesn't work for Raytheon or all of them. And... It just gives you a military assessment. This was what's taking place yeah. on the ground. And, and that's the thing is, is you get these guys like um, Mark Milley and all them, who act like they're these experts and, you know, oh, I'm going to sit up there and I'm going to be all general-like, like Jack Nicholson and, and a few good men. And it's like, I, I'm very much of the idea that uh, of what uh, Robin Williams used to say. These guys shouldn't be wearing their military garb. They should be wearing a jacket with all of their sponsors yeah. on it. And, and, and the big, and it's according to the size of how their sponsor is. Half of them would have a giant Lockheed Martin on the back covering the entire jacket. Like, my butt cheeks takes credit cards. You just slide it right on through. Yeah. Don't even worry about going with the checks. Exactly. Yeah. So, again, it's just, it's war is a racket, folks. Smedley Butler. 
But heading to your headlines, COVID. Life expectancy increased every year in the United States with very few expectations until 2020 when it dropped. Well, now 2021 is making it a trend. The latest figures released by the CDC show 2021 was the deadliest year in U.S. history with over 3.4 million deaths, about 80,000 more than 2020, which has been the deadliest year in U.S. history to date. In your national news, New York authorities moments ago have changed 62-year-old Frank James as a person of interest to a suspect in the ongoing manhunt for the gunman who donned a reflective vest when he opened fire on the subway in Brooklyn's Sunset Park neighborhood Tuesday morning, wounding at least 29 individuals who needed further medical treatment. A bus from Texas arrived in Washington, D.C. this morning, transporting dozens of illegal immigrants after Texas Governor Greg Abbott's new plan to counter the repeal of Title 42. The bus pulled up around 8 a.m. local time, blocks away from the U.S. Capitol building. Individuals got out one by one, except for family units who exited together. They checked in with officials, had the wristbands they were wearing cut off, then let go. New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin resigned Tuesday, hours after being indicted on bribery and fraud charges tied to an illegal campaign finance scheme. The former state senator turned himself in Tuesday and was charged with five counts in connection with his failed bid for New York City Comptroller last year. Benjamin is accused of working with a real estate developer with a real estate developer in order to arrange for thousands of dollars in illegal campaign donations, where in exchange, Benjamin allegedly directed state funds to that investor. In your international news, the presidents of Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, all NATO countries, are headed to Kiev in a show of support for Ukraine. And due to meet the Ukrainian leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, this is U.S. President Joe Biden called Russia's actions in Ukraine a genocide for the first time, saying, quote, Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being a Ukrainian, even though half of his family is like Ukrainian, but whatever. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he will not resign after being fined for breaking his own government's pandemic lockdown rules, saying he will instead redouble efforts to strengthen the economy and combat Russian aggression in Ukraine. Tuesday, London police fined Johnson and others for attending a birthday party thrown for the Prime Minister at his Downing Street offices in June 2020. The penalty made Johnson the first British Prime Minister ever found to have broken the law while in office. You know him saying, I'm going to redouble, I'm going to redouble efforts to strengthen the economy and combat Russian aggression. Why don't you just put a comb through your hair? You know, my mom always says that. She says every that time. That should be as fine. Every time he I, has to gel and comb his hair every day. Every time I used to do the show where I would do um, Corbin and uh, Boris Johnson in Parliament, she was like, what is wrong with his hair? <laughs> she was like, why does he comb his hair? She always used I to mean, at that. least Trump combed it back. He just looks like uh, like he's trying to be in a boy band at 70 or at 60. It's like, come on, dude. And again, his fine should have been he had to gel and comb his hair every day. Pope Francis defends the Vatican's decision to have a Russian woman and a Ukrainian woman carry the cross together during a Good Friday procession that will preside over the pontiff. Both the Ukrainian ambassador to the Holy City and the Archbishop of Kiev blasted the choice. The two women are nurses who work together at a Rome hospital. Another stupid cancellation policy. You saw yesterday they canceled Yuri Gagarin. Which is insane. Which is insane. And then 
I don't know if you guys saw my tweet. There was this <laughs> stupid chick who tweeted out a, a, a photo. Let me in. Let me go to my, my Twitter. You know, they've also been doing that to chess players. They were like, oh, hey, yeah, you yeah. need to condemn the Russians for doing so. Yeah. It's like, what? This, this, what does that this, have to do with me playing chess? This woman tweeted out a photo of Putin standing in front of the rocket prototype that he took off in. And she goes, a photo of a man secure in his manhood because he's by a big rocket. And I had to retweet it or quote tweet it. And I was like, it's the 61st anniversary of cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin going to space. He's next to the spaceship prototype he took off in. But okay. It's just. Yeah. Has everything to do with manhood. Building rockets and, you know, technology. Yeah. And even other people were trolling her ass. Like showing um, Obama next to the, the capsule from the lunar landing. They're like, just like this. Clearly means he has a small penis because he's standing by your Exactly. Yeah. Like, get out of here. I feel like Dr. Evil sometimes, like, why am I surrounded by idiots? That's how I feel. See, I don't think they're idiots. I think they know exactly what they're doing. Oh, no. I think she actually thought she was being creative and, like... Oh, God. That's even worse. She, she, <laughs> many of her commenters had zero idea of, like, anything. And because you could see, you're starting to see more people where they're like, do you know about Donbass? And somebody was like, what does that have to do with anything? And it was like... Exactly. Exactly. When so I, make my I truly arguments, think that these people are dumb. I always start trying to cover or fill that hole because it's hard to have a conversation. Like mainstream media in this country always goes with a hole in the conversation. And so everything is kind of warped around the unreality of actually what took place to lead us to this point. It's very aggravating. We'll bookmark that. Yeah, good for you. But in tech news, CNN Plus gotten off on the wrong foot as it struggled to gain viewers just two weeks after its launch, citing people familiar with the matter. Uh, CNN, CNBC reported that CNN Plus is only ranking in fewer than 10,000 viewers a day, which is basically like YouTube numbers. So there you go. Your holidays today are International Creativity and Innovation Day, International Day of Pink, Peach Cobbler Day, Scrabble Day, and Thomas Jefferson Day. Your historical dates, 97, Tiger Woods became the youngest ever golfer to win the Masters Tournament, and in 64, Lilies of the Field actor Sidney Poitier won, was the first African-American to win the Academy Award for Best Actor. Those are your headlines for Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. You know how to get across how paltry those numbers are. Rumble, we get, what, like a thousand views for each show by itself. One of the other shows that we did, I think it was a response to um, Western media attacks on the show. That one got 3,000 by itself, and it was, what, a 15-minute segment. These guys are making 10,000 numbers. It's CNN. It's an international company. And their numbers are, what, just 10 times more than us? I mean... Appalling. It's pretty hilarious. Like, even, even like, smaller channels like, like the Convo Couch or Sabby Sab They can or, hit those numbers, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, like, <laughs> it's... it's or international I'm not surprised, though. ...to get that tiny number of views. I mean, look, YouTube wasn't meant, at the very least in the beginning, for these kind of media giants to function like that. I mean, all things been equal is supposed to be for independent media. YouTube, it's in a name, right? And so it's like, who wants to go onto YouTube and find, I don't know, Anderson Cooper? Or, or maybe not YouTube, or the, the system itself. Why would they take that extra step to buy into something that they basically get already? Well, you know what's really interesting, too, is, is like, yeah, like you're mentioning that, like, you had all these YouTubers where it was supposed to be creative outlets going there. And then you have these mainstream media channels putting in their clips, trying to bust up the algorithm. And people have turned on to that, obviously. But the other thing why I think is, you know, and I always say this, cable news has 60 seconds to literally wrap up eight years of fighting and eight years of like political unrest and eight years of corruption in Ukraine. 
into 60 seconds and then bring in eight people to yell at each other about it. And and how in the hell is anybody supposed to feel more informed after that? Yeah. So now what people have done is they go to the likes of a Joe Rogan and, and people will watch a three-hour podcast. They will while they're working out, while they're cleaning. It's I do it. Yeah. You know, yeah. But they're listening because people obviously are more in tune of I'm not getting the full story anymore because so many times we've been lied to. Like we brought up, for example, Richard Jewell. Many people didn't realize all of the things that went, went that happened, how they blamed this guy. However, they did um, change that guy from a um, person of interest to a suspect now. Oh, okay. So it'll be interesting. There must be getting but, more know, evidence. Here yeah. they had zero idea of what happened, you know, uh, of of the, the backstory on that. And then you learn and you're like, wait a minute, I was never told this stuff. Yeah. And people have, have you know, they're obviously far, you know, more Informed. I believe it was Mark Twain that said, you know, you're informed if you don't read. And, and if you are, if you're informed, if you don't read the paper, if you do, and if you're you misinformed. read the paper, you're misinformed. Yeah. And you that's know, accurate. But, but again, people are, are, are listening to podcasts, watching documentaries, getting more long form stuff, realizing there's a lot more to stories. They don't just pop up. A war, Putin doesn't pop up and invade for no reason. And air hits. That's right. what, what, what happens. It just it's out of nowhere. It just happens. I mean, and to make it even worse, like, I mean, because you're right. And there are two ways to look at it. You could have something like crosstalk where they just bring two people on and yell at each other where you leave thinking, all right, I have no idea what's true in this. You guys basically said two opposite things to me. Um, or you have the other thing where everybody's just on the same page with the Ukraine stuff. Neither one of those things are informative. Neither one of those things are contextual. And neither one of those things all that much help. It better at just giving information. But let's do this. Let's take a break. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak, we're coming back with... Uh, Camila, Camila thank you. I, her name went blank. I could see the last <laughs> name, but I couldn't. Uh, the, Camila Escalante, she's awesome. She's great. She's going to have a conversation on some of the countries in the South that basically voted to either remove Russia from the Human Rights Council or abstain. Fault Lines, Thomas, Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM, to the chagrin of many. Also, if you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, Give us a like and share that audio or video, or for that matter, a rumble, since we are indeed on Rumble now. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And let's just bring in our guests. We're joined with the one and only Camilla Escalante. She's a journalist, correspondent, and communist reporter, communist reporting in Latin America. I'm Camilla. Welcome to the show. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. Hey, I'm well. Thanks so much, guys. Nice to be with you again. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. So the UN draft resolution to suspend Russia from the Human Rights Council passed in the General Assembly. Now, the U.S. didn't get the support that it wanted, but it did get enough votes for in order to remove them or suspend them from the um, Human Rights Council. So you get one of the interesting things, though, were some of the countries that decided to go in with this vote. And many of those countries were from basically South America. Um, leftist governments, no less. What is going on with this? You would think that these leftist governments would be more in line with, let's say, Russia, as opposed to with the U.S., especially given the historical context of the things that the U.S. was doing um, in South America. Explain this to us. What's going on? 
Well, precisely. Those uh, countries that voted uh, to suspend the membership rights of Russia and the Human Rights Council and this uh, UN General Assembly vote that took place last week are leftist governments. They're progressive governments at best. And so that's the distinction we make between the governments that, you know, you see us covering a lot of on Kasachin News, which are the revolutionary and socialist governments on the one hand, and then this other group of progressive governments where we never know what we're going to get from them. One reason might be that we've heard from a lot of journalists and people from, for example, Argentina and Mexico, is that there's a little bit of uh, a disjointed government there where we have, you know, they came to power through coalitions, through alliances, and that that government is represented by a couple of different parties and interests within them. There's, of course, always going to be a right wing. There's always going to be, um, you know, a wing of the party, of the governing party that's not so revolutionary and not so anti-imperialist. At the same time, we have, you know, some more socialist um, and revolutionary elements within uh, those governments who are, you know, taking the path of some of the ALBA countries and kind of like, you know, uh, trying to strengthen relations with countries like Nicaragua and Venezuela. So there's a little bit of a split. But at the same time, it seems that these countries, um, particularly we're talking about Argentina, Honduras, Chile and Peru, um, you know, two of them came to uh, came to power in recent months. Um, these governments that were calling leftists. Uh, you know, they or they didn't really understand the assignment. Essentially, is is you know how how we have to how we have to understand what happened because they are in fact voting against their own interests, and that was made clear if you heard the interventions during that general assembly uh, meeting by you know the Cuban um, permanent representative as well as Samuel Moncada, the permanent representative of Venezuela. Both of these countries made it absolutely clear that this mechanism that was being used to remove Russia's uh, membership rights from the Human Rights Council um, is something that sets a dangerous precedent because they can now go forward and do this to any country. And the way in which they removed Russia uh, was through um, you know, a, a clause that didn't require any sort of majority. It didn't require... Um, any sort of quorum in the General Assembly, and they were actually removed with far less votes than they actually entered the General Assembly uh, or the entered the Human Rights Council with. So, you know, of 193 member states of the United Nations, uh, the they, you know, just about all of them, uh, with a very small um, exception, voted for, for Russia to be entered into the Human Rights Council, and then they were removed with 93 93 uh, states out of 193. So that's a minority. As many people have made clear online in the commentary, 73.73% of the world's population is represented in the countries that abstained or voted against this resolution. So it doesn't, it, uh, it absolutely doesn't represent the people of India, the people of China, two very important countries, as well as many countries of Latin America and the Caribbean did in fact abstain. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so a little bit less than an hour ago, um, you had coming out of the Washington Post opinion, Nicaragua is Russia's new BFF in Latin America. The U.S. must respond. Um, even going, this article goes all the way back to, you know, the Cold War and how, you know, the Soviets gave Nicaragua or the leftist Ortega-led Sandista regime during the late Cold War gave them arms. Um, 
kind of your response, I mean, you know, even when this kind of first came out, when this first invasion started happening, you had Ortega coming out saying, hey, they've, they've provoked Putin. Um, I guess kind of what is the, what is the temperature and reading the room um, in South America since you're obviously down there in Bolivia? Um, is that sentiment still true despite, you know, kind of these votes, obviously, as you said, kind of going against their own people and voting? But do you, do you agree that Nicaragua is Russia's new BFF? Well, they're going against their own membership rights and their own rights within the General Assembly, their ability to exert influence, their ability to have any say within this international forum, which we're saying is the most important. I mean, these are countries uh, whose you know governments are willingly a part of the United Nations, which so many people have a lot of, you know, you know, rightfully negative critique of the United Nations body in the way in which it's a tool of imperialism and used by the North, used by the West, uh, dominated by the United States and all of its bodies. Um, And so they're, you know, taking part in the United Nations, but they're not afraid to, 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 to take this vote in which they're saying that any country can just arbitrarily be removed based on some, you know, geopolitical events and the smear campaigns in the media. Nicaragua, in 2011, we posted an article as well as the video. In 2011, Nicaragua stood with Libya against uh, the removal um, of Libya and the Human Rights Council. And it was one of the countries who, again, uh, spoke in the General Assembly. This was a you know, sort of vote that was not a recorded vote. It was voted unanimously, essentially. So we, we're not going to see um, that panel with all of the countries that voted uh, for, against, and abstained from this, um, from that vote. But Libya was the first country to be removed from the Human Rights Council. And they, you know, not only did they say that, you know, we shouldn't be using this sort of clause to remove a country based on um, a smear campaign, but they also warned uh, very vocally against foreign military intervention. They said it would lead to more bloodshed and complete chaos and destabilization in the country. And it would open to the door to the people who want to go in and steal the resources, the natural resources of the Libyan people and Libya's oil. And this is precisely what happened. I mean, this is a completely different country we're talking about. And this is 11 years ago that this vote took place. And Nicaragua stood with that country. And they 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 had, had the same consistent position. Cuba also has held the same consistent position. And they were also uh, possibly even more uh, vocal and more precise during that 2011 General Assembly meeting, speaking out against that resolution to once again remove Libya. Um, for these same reasons, saying that this clause is unjust, that this is a you know a manipulation um, of of the way in which we should be using the the United Nations, and so you know these countries have been absolutely consistent. Venezuela also spoke in that same uh, meeting, I should say. I, Bolivia didn't, so unless you know it might be difficult to find out what their exact position was uh, going back, but it was under the Evo Morales government. So you can guarantee it's pretty similar to the position they have now. This is not about these countries being, um, you know, in the pocket of Russia or anything like that. These are consistently held positions and the statements that they're, you know, emitting today are, you know, are just a continuation of the positions they held before. It is true that Nicaragua's Sandinista government is trying to strengthen relations with its overseas allies and partners and trying to, you know, they're trying to really level up in terms of um, economic development and economic 
cooperation, and they're looking for foreign investment. That includes private investment as well, not just investment by you know the Russian and Chinese state, but they're also allowing in businessmen to come in and uh, and try to um, invest in some really important sectors like tourism. But this isn't. Uh, I don't think this is a factor whatsoever. I I believe that they really think that if they're going to be a part of the United Nations, that they want to be able to vote just like anyone else and have their vote count like anyone else. And they don't want to be voting against their own interests and voting for things just because a certain block of country, countries that represents an absolute minority of the world, um, is coercing everyone else to do so. Yeah, and it's insane. Europe is willing to kind of vote in their own interests, but Europe has been vassal states forever, right? Many of these other countries, um, not so much. Not to mention, not only not willing to vote against their own interests, willing to take advantage of the fact that Europe and the United States has gotten itself into this kind of weird position um, of lacking various products and having inflation going through the roof and everything else. And so, yeah, there's that part. Yeah, and I just just to add that, like, you know, there, along, uh, along with those countries that voted against this measure uh, from uh, from Latin America, which was, you know, Nicaragua, Cuba, Bolivia, Venezuela, which doesn't have the right to vote. So they spoke out against uh, the measure in their statement, but because of uh, reasons having to do with um, the fact that they haven't been able to pay their membership dues to the United Nations for a number of reasons related to the sanctions. One of the reasons being that because of the unilateral course of measures imposed by the United States and other countries, they're not able to, uh, you know, handle uh, payment in dollars. And so even if they do have uh, money and they are making payments towards other things like trade, they're using other currencies. So this might be some of the reason. But in, in addition to that, we saw a number of countries that abstained. And I think this is really important because on the morning of the vote, we heard AMLO in his daily, uh, President Lopez Obrador of Mexico in his daily press conference, speak against uh, this mechanism and speak against the potential to be uh, suspending Mexico because, um, you know, he, like many other countries, said that this is absolutely has nothing to do with human rights. This has nothing to do with uh, the conflict that's going on, and it's not going to improve uh, the situation. And it's definitely not going to, um, you know, it's it's not going to lead to any sort of solution between Ukraine, Russia, and any of the other uh, NATO parties that are very much involved, participating, and uh, if not, you know, fueling and worse. Uh, this conflict, but other countries as well abstain alongside Mexico, El Salvador, Belize, and it's really important to mention St. Kitts and Nevis and St. Lucia, which are also ALBA countries who are taking, you know, that same position. Unfortunately, they didn't vote against, but they did abstain. Yeah, yeah, 58 abstentions, 24 against, and you had 93 in favor. And like we had people on, that that 93 in favor is a lot of browbeating, a lot of threats, a lot of arm twisting um, in order to get these countries to basically toe this path. And even with that, like you said, they ended up with less um, than what they came in with when they started. Um, one last thing and one last question before we go. Venezuela. There were talks that Venezuela, well, there were articles coming out that Venezuela were going to be in talks on some level or something to do with um, the relationship with Russia going forward. What is going on with that? I mean, it, because that's getting, it's a little weird. Initially, the United States and Joe Biden got involved trying to have some level of talks in relationship between Venezuela. The reason is obvious. Um, Europe gets, what, like 40 percent of its gas. And they don't necessarily have anybody to replace that. And so they're kind of in the lurch, especially with this notion of you guys got to pay us some rubles. OPEC is not going to increase the amount of oil um, that's coming out. They have no reason to. Saudi Arabia is not going to increase the amount of oil. They have no reason to. These guys are making all sorts of bucks as a result of the increase in the oil prices. So how does Venezuela fit into this? 
Well, Venezuela right now is, um, you know, celebrating or commemorating a very important anniversary uh, this April 11th through 13th. Today is the 20th anniversary of the day that uh, the Civic Military Alliance of Venezuela brought back uh, Commander President Hugo Chavez to power following a brief attempt at a coup in which uh, Commander Chavez was kidnapped and taken to the um, Orchila. He was taken to a uh, an island and held hostage there. And they they told the, the right-wing media a uh, big propaganda war was taking place at that time. And the media told the world and told Venezuelan citizens so that they would give up hope that he had actually uh, stepped down from power when he absolutely had not stepped down from power. The people fought and they brought him back to power in about 48 hours. This is a very incredible, important event um, in history and one to learn from in terms of, um, you know, coups and destabilization and things like that. But one of the things that they're talking about in Venezuela right now is the way in which there are parallels between that um, massive media campaign against the revolutionary forces, against the people in Venezuela, and the campaign we see against Russia right now. They're making these parallels. They're holding Holding, um, they're holding a, an event which is against fascism in Venezuela. It's an international event with all sorts of delegates from social movements and parties from all around the world. And they've been talking about what's going on in Russia right now. And we've been seeing acts of solidarity with the Russian people. We're seeing people with their Russian flags. And um, it's a very amazing thing that's going on right now. So it's just very clear uh, that you know, Russia and Venezuela have that very close relationship. We don't really have any new um, updates in terms of what's going to happen with whether they'll be able to sell their oil to the U.S. or whether these uh, U.S. Uh, companies will be able to move in and 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 start, uh, you know, activities again. But um, we'll be watching for that. But I think it's clearer than ever that Venezuela is looking towards BRIC countries and other alternatives, other alternatives for payments and for uh, for for money and currency and, you know, the sorts of things that are going to be introduced by other emerging world powers. And they're not so concerned anymore about SWIFT or about the United States or the EU or what the hell they have going on. Camilla, thank you for this. Really appreciate it. Great rundown. I'm Camilla Escalante is a journalist, correspondent in communist reporting in Latin America. You guys are listening to Faultlines. Thomas Franzak. We're coming back with Elijah Magnier. He's going to give us this kind of information, this information warfare that has basically been taking place, not to mention events that have been taking place on the ground in Ukraine. So, Faultlines. Thomas Franzak. Back in a moment. Faultlines. Faultlines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And we have a great guest um, for us. We have Elijah Magnier. He's a longtime journalist and war correspondent that has covered several conflicts on many continents. And again, one of my favorite um, guests. I love having this conversation. Elijah, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Hello, and thank you for having me again. Absolutely. So there's a lot of news that has been taking place um, on the ground. And some of that has to do with Maripal, where you get the uh, Guardian basically um, given the announcements from various Azov fighters saying they felt betrayed on some level by the government, that they're running out of equipment, supplies, and that they're basically on the verge of collapse. You have other stories that came out, even I believe it was on um, Twitter at this point when they were giving their rundown. Even they at this point acknowledged that Maripal is on the brink of collapse. More interesting things that was in an article had to do with this kind of fear of leaving or pulling the troops away from Kiev in order to go to the Donbass region because they're in their heads. There's a Russian strike force that can basically take the city. So the faint maneuver that was basically being used in order to keep those troops pinned down 
from Ukraine's standpoint, they are still stuck on some level, pinned down, protecting the capital. And now you have, of course, the war that is raging in the east. Um, and this is in the Donbass area. You have all of this stuff taking place. You get the media comes out, says there's a chemical weapons attack. Zelensky, when he talks about it, is not bringing up the fact there was a chemical weapons attack. All of these guys are now saying there's an investigation done by the Ukrainians, which, again, is not something that can be taken seriously. Um, so from your take on all of this, we brought you on to have this conversation about the information warfare that's happening. And even if you look at the media now, you see one story after the next. Oh, Russia's doing this. Russia's doing that. Vladimir Putin is by himself. Vladimir Putin is isolated. All of this stuff, all of these news stories. And yet, when NBC News broke their story, they were very clear that the White House has basically been lying voluminously over the course of this conflict. What is your take on this? How do you feel about it? I feel it's a deja vu in many wars that was run by the United States, particularly when uh, they want to demonize a country or a president, which is the case of Russia today. And the propaganda war is uh, one of the most effective war in every conflict. And the U.S. and the West have succeeded in this war by overwhelming and flooding social media and mainstream media with uh, wrong information and giving us information that they say they are not confirmed. And when we hear that Russia is accused of uh, crime against humanity and massacre in cities, and then we hear today that France is going to send an investigation team into, for example, the city of Bucha, then how can you claim this is, going, this is happening when you haven't sent the team to investigate on the ground what is the reality is, but that is part of the propaganda that is going on. And we heard also yesterday that the Iraqi, an Iraqi group that is sending weapons to support Russia and in the war in Ukraine, when Iraq is one of the importer of weapons from Russia and Russia export to 45 countries around the world. And yet, there are so many people who believe this kind of propaganda without verifying because people are not really into looking for the reality of what's happening on the ground. And you mentioned the military maneuver of Russia in the north. Actually, Ukraine did not liberate any city. It is Russia that decided to pull out, change its tactic, and go toward Donbass without surrounding cities like Kiev, and uh, notwithstanding the fact that the Russian landed in Hostomel at 35 miles from Kiev in the second day. So there is a shift of tactic from the Russian that we've seen, and a concentration of attack only on the east to live, take control of Donbass and the south to take control of Mariupol. And when we see that there is a real fight in Mariupol, we see that the uh, Ukrainians are really not uh, liberating anything because yesterday we heard 1,026 Ukrainian servicemen of the 36th Marine Brigade voluntarily laid down their arms and surrender to Russia. So what we hear is a lot of propaganda that unfortunately it is very difficult to counter when you are flooded by so many fake news and so many 
uh, fake propaganda that people really tend to believe. Well, and even like you had one of them, um, for example, you had, there was two different headlines and I brought this up a little bit earlier, but you had two different narratives going on when it came to Viktor Medvedchuk. You had from the BBC, fugitive Putin ally Medvedchuk arrested, says you, you, uh, Ukraine Security Service. And then for, um, from RT, it says the leader of Ukraine's largest opposition party, Viktor Medvedchuk, has been arrested by Ukrainian authorities. Now, clearly a tale of two narratives there. But the one thing that's interesting, though, is, and we've been saying this for, or at least I have for since this kind of all started, is I feel like, you know, it's so interesting that Russia was able to hack an election for Donald Trump to win. However, they're truly losing the propaganda war when it comes to this Ukraine debacle. Um, why is it, do you think, that the West is so much better at putting out this propaganda? And clearly, I mean, you know, they always say people kind of have to be red-pilled in order to see this because I even remember before I was red-pilled, or is that the, if that's what you want to call it, um, seeing these headlines and it was like, okay, gee, oh, wow, it's a fugitive Putin ally. Oh, gosh, you know, they got the bad guy. But then when you learn and you see and, and, and you're kind of, you're awakened to all of this, how do you think and why do you think the West does the propaganda machine so much better than Russia does? Well, that's a very good question. But actually, there are two points here to highlight. Before talking about the propaganda machine, I would like to point out about the uh, op the Ukrainian opposition leader, uh, Mr. Medvedev, who was arrested by the Ukrainian forces and President Zelensky asked to exchange a Ukrainian citizen with Ukrainian POWs. Now, that is really shameful, but it is a very interesting point, highlighting one of the main reasons of the war. When Ukraine doesn't consider the eastern part as part of Ukraine, this is why in 2014, we had between 13,000 to 14,000 Ukrainian killed by other Ukrainians. And people don't highlight that point, that a major uh, event, because they think, well, they are Russian speakers. Well, I, I know so many Russians that I've met in my life, and all of them have family in Ukraine. Everybody is a Russian speaker in Ukraine, almost everybody. So this is not an excuse, but it is what is uh, interesting is to see how the mainstream media is taking this point and saying Putin's man, a Ukrainian Putin's man, to exchange with other Ukrainians. And there is no shame in that. Now, the second point that you have highlighted, I think, first of all, is the language. Now, most of the people on, uh, on Earth speak English. Secondly, nobody speaks Chinese or Indian, who represent around 2.8 billion of the population around the world. Uh, thirdly, because the West is the center of attention, because the West has been, since uh, the Second World War, involved in conflict after another, where the U.S. has been expanding uh, its um, hegemony around the world, particularly in Asia and in, in the Middle East. Therefore, w w without omitting Africa, of course, 
Therefore, it is the language that is adopted where many people speak because they come to the West, they come to Europe, they come to the United States. So you have many people speaking French, Spanish, uh, English, uh, German, etc. Now, there is a weak point in Russia where they did not work properly, not, not to counter the Western propaganda, because that's extremely difficult, but to raise more the standards of their media and support free media to make sure that their voice and the voice of others is reaching everywhere, like yours today. I, I don't belong to any Russian institution, and yet I speak to the radio and I speak freely about whoever I want. I can't do that in other places. They host me one, but that's it. The second time, they won't do it again. So Russia needs to invest more in um, in media and needs to be more open to uh, invest in this field that is extremely important and one of the most powerful tool in any conflict or in non-conflict situation to explain the reality around the world of what is happening, particularly in a case like the war in Ukraine today. Elijah, a headline that I read the other day, and apparently this story came out a few days ago, and I'm just now seeing it, but um, that gets across how it wasn't necessarily reported with the gravity that I think it should have been reported with. But Biden is prepared to authorize as early as today as $750 million in weapons to Ukraine. It faces a revamped Russian offensive in the Donbass region, according to Reuters, which first broke the story. It didn't first break the story. We have been Oh, this is aggravating. We've been saying this stuff for weeks. We've been nailing this stuff. And they're like, oh, we've just gotten it right. No, you guys did not get this right. Lynn Lease was used in a second world war. And I was making this point earlier how Lynn Lease, you know, at the point where it's like, does that make the U.S. a belligerent at the point where the U.S. started to give more and heavier weaponry? And it's like NATO has come up with reports saying they're running out of weaponry to give Ukraine. And so it's like, okay, so what weapons are you giving Ukraine? How is it going to be different than the weapons you were giving them to kill Russians prior that wasn't necessarily working? And beyond that point, is there going to be training? How long does the training take? And by Russia's assessment, this stuff is, they're looking at like a month for the conflict um, in regards to resolution on some level for a peace deal. The U.S. and NATO has been talking about like months as if the conflict is going to be taking place later into the future. All of that stuff seems to be coming to a head now. So... Uh, what do they think these weapon systems in this situation is going to do? Well, there is one point here to mention is the Russian troops have been gathering on the Ukrainian border since April 2021. And President Putin has been saying to the world, look, if you don't stop training the Ukrainians, sending weapons and bringing Ukraine into NATO, I'm going to attack because I have the right to defend myself a sentence that the U.S. uses most of the time, and as well as Israel and other countries when they want to attack another country and they feel threatened by a force or a neighbor. Now, the weapon that they are sending to Ukraine is very clear because being said by many officials is not to deter the Russian forces, is not to defeat Russia and Ukraine but is to make sure that the war is going to last as long as possible. Because we heard from President Putin yesterday a confirmation from the Ukrainian that they have no intention to negotiate really a peace process or an agreement in Istanbul or wherever they would like to, because Ukraine has been promised you continue the war, you don't stop it, 
even if Donbass is occupied, we continue supplying you with weapons because you are an undeclared part of NATO. In fact, in 2008, uh, uh, NATO responded to President Putin's famous speech at Munich 2007 when he invited the U.S. to uh, uh, diminish the nuclear weapons and to stop the expansion of NATO. Now, NATO expanded and said it's been training Ukraine to join NATO and to provoke Russia because NATO is made only to counter Russia. Now, the weapons they are sending, they sending, they are all the satellites, all the U.S. and NATO generals are studying what kind of forces the Russians have on the ground, and they send exactly the amount and the number and the quality and the type of weapons needed only to make sure that uh, Russia will send more reinforcement of the damaged uh, equ military equipment in the battlefield, not to defeat Russia, but for the war to continue. That is the objective. Should I be concerned about the Lend-Lease stuff? I mean, look, like I said, it made us belligerents um, in the Second World War. And look, it's not that I'm against it in the Second World War. I'm against it here because I feel like this conflict, A, shouldn't be taking place. B, Ukraine has no potential to win this war. And C, we're just getting people killed in this process. It just feels so senseless um, to me, catastrophically senseless. And so should I be concerned that this is the U.S.'s way, despite the pro you know, proclamations, we're not going to get involved, we're not going to get involved, that the white hatting and the black hatting gives this kind of almost like a manufactured consent for the public in the either Europe or in the United States to believe that they're the good guys in this conflict, that they're on the right side of history, to take a word from Jen Psaki, um, in the way that she would say this stuff. Am I should I be concerned that this is our way of inching ourselves closer and closer to that line where we are considered belligerents? The United States has been built on uh, declaring war on other countries and being engaged in war. You met, you've mentioned rightly the Second World War. Well, in the, during the Second World War, the, uh, the U.S. had a, a budget of $85 billion dollars with during the second war it went up from 85 to 135 billion dollars the us was involved in the war after pearl harbor 1941 but made so much money from europe that europe until 2015 was still paying the bill of the second world war then europe, then the us moved to the marshall plan and the marshall plan was based on supporting the european economy allowing Europe to borrow U.S. money for the U.S. to stay in Europe. And the U.S. moved from 70,000 troops to 100,000 troops. That was confirmed yesterday. And then all the war that the U.S. has waged against so many countries, coup d'etat, we're not talking only about Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria and Libya. These are the last 20 years. We're talking about the coup d'etat against Mossadegh 1950s. We're talking about Latin America. We're talking about so many other countries around the world. And what we hear from China, exactly what is happening in Ukraine. The U.S. is defending its hegemony. And President Emmanuel Macron, who was a, uh, is a candidate to the presidency now, in an interview released today to the French newspaper Le Point, he said, the U.S. needs to acknowledge that it is no longer uh, the uh, ruler of the world and the world is no longer under unipolar system. This is what the U.S. is finding difficult to agree, to accept, 
to acknowledge, to swallow. And that's why there are so many weapons sold around or given around for more war to, to happen because the U.S. is defending its throne. This is what it's about today. I want to kind of shift gears for a second. And I've been working to try to get this, this confirmed here. And it, and it turns out it is. I want to switch to the French election really quick um, because you have uh, Marine Le Pen and uh, Emmanuel Macron, where they're going to be going at each other now. Um, last time, Macron won by over 30 points. This time, I think it's going to be neck and neck. Um, you had last week the Polish president blasting um, Emmanuel Macron, saying that he was, quote, like speaking with the enemy and that, you know, he, we don't, you know, converse with criminals. And, you know, we basically, you know, we don't, we don't negotiate with terrorists, as the Americans would say. And um, blasting Macron for that. You now have, um, this is coming out of Telegram, uh, being reported across from RT, Repley, Sputnik. Marine Le Pen, if she wins, she says France will withdraw from NATO. And you also have Emmanuel Macron saying that he's not going to sanction Russia anymore. So you have two leaders, um, both vying for the title of the grand title of you know the French president. What do you see now, especially with this wrench thrown in there? Um, she also, and, and it also says here, the presidential hopeful added that she doesn't want France to exit the EU, however, yeah. um, where they were calling about Frexit. Um, but her saying that she's going to withdraw from NATO if she's elected. And then even Macron saying no more sanctions. What do you think's going on here, Elijah? Allow me, if I may, to add the uh, German chancellor who announced today that he was persona non grata to visit Kiev with other European leaders uh, because Germany is not willing to support the war in Ukraine. So what I make of the election is Europe counts really on France and Germany to stop the U.S. control of the European continent, pushing the European continent to a war with its neighbor, Russia, that uh, lost 3.5 million men in the First World War and 24 million men in the Second World War alongside with the Europeans. Russia is a natural European partner. Russia was selling gas to Europe at the cheaper price of 30 to 40 percent of the U.S. liquid gas that is coming, that is going to come to Europe, but not satisfying the European market. The exchange between Europe and Russia is $190 billion a year. This is what Europe is not at war with Russia. Europe has been pushed by the Americans either under the title, either you are with us or against us. Either they all declare um, uh, uh, Russia as an enemy and they stand by the U.S. or they are alienated. That's why the Polish leader permits himself to call Macron as uh, talking with a traitor. Since when Putin has been a traitor? For Europe, it is not the case. This is why uh, Macron and Le Pen, they both have a, a political and diplomatic attitude toward Putin and not an aggressive one, because this is how diplomacy is. And this is how relationship on a continent with a neighbor is. 
particularly when Russia is not attacking an European member because Ukraine is not, is not attacking a NATO member because Ukraine is not a NATO member, is an undeclared member, and Russia expressed particularly its concerns about its own security. Why do we need extra nuclear bombs in Europe uh, deployed in Ukraine? Against whom? Against Russia. So this is why the two leaders today in France, Le Pen and Macron, are saying our attitude toward Russia is going to be different. Macron was not uh, really determined to stand against the U.S. plans to uh, uh, alienate Russia because he had the presidential election to run. However, he always said that Russia respects France and he negotiated for hours, six times with President Putin related to the Ukrainian crisis. If had he not been an understandable president of what are the concerns of Russia, he would have met uh, President Putin once and that would have been enough. But he took the political risk to continue meeting President Putin. He called him a couple of days ago because it is in the advantage of everybody to see the end of the Ukrainian war with guarantees that uh, Russia feels comfortable with. When the US is pushing Ukraine not to say, yes, we do no longer want to be part of NATO, we will not have nuclear weapons on our land, and we will not be armed with offensive missile that can damage Russia, that is not difficult to stop a war and stop the end of the Ukrainian population um, uh, killing. Because this is what the Americans are pushing and saying, we send you more weapons so you can fight to the last Ukrainian. This is the U.S. attitude and this is the French and the German attitude. We should not exclude Germany because Germany is a very important player on the European continent. Who do you think, though, with this and with her saying this, who do you think will ultimately possibly win the election? Because you do have it where you had the far left leader who got around 22 percent of the last election. Um, they don't know, you know, like, for example, we had a caller in yesterday who said many of his friends in France either aren't going to vote or they're going to vote for Macron. Um, how do you see that election going since it's, you know, coming up pretty quickly? Well, if we take all the other right wing uh, candidates who ask to uh, divert their vote to Le Pen, and they count around more than 35 to 37% of the voters in the first elections, that is serious. Uh, however, the Mélenchon um, socialist and the left wing also said they will not give their vote to the right wing. What I see in the election is going to be extremely tight, I think most probably Macron will get away with it, but it's going to be very close. And this is serious because we understand the mood in Europe is changing and they talk about feeling insecure, they want security. But for Marie Le Pen to have 23% plus votes, that is also an indication of what's happening in Europe. At the end of the day, I think there will uh, Macron uh, will will be the winner. Elijah Manier, thank you for this. Really appreciate your appraisal on the events on the ground in Ukraine, not to mention events in the French election. Um, Elijah Magnier is a longtime journalist, war correspondent, and has covered several conflicts on many different continents. 
We've come to the end. You guys can hear the music. I want to thank our producer, en- producers, engineer. I want to thank my co-host, Farron Franzak. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you. You guys have a phenomenally awesome day, and we will see you bright and early in the morning. My name is Jamal Thomas, signing off. May the good news be yours. Fault lines.